Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Third rule of Fight Club, someone yells stop, goes limp, taps out, the fight is over. Fourth rule, only two guys to a fight. Fifth rule, one fight at a time, fellas. Sixth rule, no shirts, no shoes. Seventh rule, fights will go on as long as they have to. And the eighth and final rule, if this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Film 89 Podcast. As usual, I'm Sky and I'm the editor of Film89.co.uk and sitting with me tonight to my left is... Hey Space Monkeys, it's me, I'm back, Neil Gaskin, good to be uh, back on Film 89. And uh, for all you number fans out there, this is episode number 30 and joining us tonight all the way from, is it Los Angeles, California? Yeah, today Los Angeles or Hollywood. Ah, right, is the founder of jabhookboxing.com and a frequent co-host of numerous podcasts, including the Pound for Pound podcast, Wrong Real, and uh, this is now his second time on Film 89, after his uh, brilliant debut last Christmas for our Christmas special Die Hard episode. It is, of course, the wonderful Mr. Jacob Rivera. Jacob, welcome back. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Jacob. Good to have you back, and... Uh... At least we know what film we're talking about this time. <laughs> yeah. A little, in, little inside joke. <laughs> little inside joke, which we're never going to reveal to our listeners ever. <laughs> okay, so as, as you all know, um, if you're listening to this now, tonight's episode is going to be about a film which is celebrating its 20th anniversary. It's by director David Fincher. It is his fourth film, fourth major theatrical film, released in, I think, October 1999. It is, of course... Fight Club, based on the novel by the same name by author Chuck Palahniuk, who uh, I think released the book in 1996. The film was then picked up by 20th Century Fox. Uh, It was put to uh, a few directors. I think um, initially they wanted Peter Jackson to direct at one point, and then it was, uh, I think they were looking to Danny Boyle. But then uh, eventually it fell back to uh, David Fincher, someone who had prior relationship with Fox, having cut his teeth as a major theatrical film director when he made Alien 3 in 1992. And for anyone who's unfamiliar with the making of that film, it is one of the most um, sort of famous recent troubled Hollywood productions. The studio interfered a great deal with Fincher, who at that time had only been known for uh, music videos. Basically, he said that it was an awful experience and I think he's pretty much refused to talk about Alien 3. In, in interviews and, and you know any behind the scenes documentaries they've done about the film uh, you know since the making of it he's just kind of washed his hands with it 
Jacob, how did you come to know uh, Fight Club and just take us through your relationship with the film? Yeah, well, I, I saw it in the theater, but I had I had seen Alien Three in the theater, and I did I liked it, and I know that Fincher is, has a kind of a weird relationship with that movie, and I know the studio's hands were all over it, and it was kind of you know a little bit of a disaster. But then he did Seven, which I also saw in the theater, was very impressed by that. Um, then he did the game, also saw in the theater, was impressed. So it was basically just I I really liked these movies, these three movies that he had come out with, and I liked his style. And so it was a no-brainer to go see uh, Fight Club in the theater. And, of course, it had uh, Edward Norton in it, who I really liked at the time, and uh, Brad Pitt, who I was also a fan of. I actually saw it by default. I was supposed to be, I can't even remember what film I was supposed to be seeing at the time, but uh, I missed the, the screening of whatever film I was going to. I absolutely love Seven. Fight Club, I was just totally uninterested. I think it was, to me, it was just a film that was about an underground sort of fight scene. I didn't really see Brad Pitt and Ed Norton fitted into that sort of mm. film you know it sounded like a bad sort of Van Damme synopsis and then when I saw it I was absolutely well mind blown by it let's be honest yeah so it's pretty safe to say then you kind of went into the film blind I had absolutely no idea what the film was about I knew it was about an underground sort of fighting ring that's all I knew and you know caught me off guard that's yeah I, you know, I, I saw it back in 99 I Pretty sure, if it was released October in the States, I'm pretty sure it was released a little bit later um, over in the UK. October. Yeah, so it was released in the UK November 12th, so uh, I think almost or just over a month after the US release. Uh, by which time, you know, I had absorbed a bit of the marketing about it, seen a few trailers, knew nothing about the book, knew nothing about the twist in the film, and I think pretty much like you, Neil, I went in just expecting some sort of testosterone-filled sort of exploration of these men sort of embracing violence and, yeah. and, and nothing more. Kind of had a vibe it was going to be like a sort of art house sort of fight film, but I was like, this just isn't mm. going to work, you know? It's interesting you guys point that out because I think one of the biggest problems with this film is how they marketed it. So when it was turned into um, you know, the studio, to 20th Century Fox, they didn't really know what to do with it. And I think that's why it wasn't really – it was kind of a flop, but you know, they didn't know how to market it. If, it all, if you look at all the commercials and stuff, a lot of people kind of grasped onto the violence and that it was just a fight, you know, fighting movie. But actually there's a lot more layers and um, interesting you know, things about it uh, that you know, people you know, maybe were initially turned off of. Yeah, you know, when the film got going then, and I actually realised what it was way before, you know, and I'm talking way before we actually realised the, the truth about, you know, Tyler and, and, you know, the narrator's relationship, you know, I was really enjoying it. I thought the, the first two thirds of the film completely blew me away. But what I wasn't picking up on is all the little clues which are peppered throughout. And when that final sort of twist hits you like a sledgehammer punch and you actually realise, and, and again... <laughs> something we've forgotten to do if anyone's listening to this now this episode about a 20 year old film and you've not seen it please turn us off go and watch fight club rent it you know download it you know borrow the dvd or blu-ray or someone if you can then come back and listen to us because we are going to be examining this film in as we usually do explicit detail so yeah your final warning and yeah when that final reveal is given that tyler and jack um as he's known are the same person my response wasn't overly enthusiastic. I rewatched it, and on second viewing, everything made sense. Because I knew where the film was going, I could look for the little clues. And after that sort of initial shaky first viewing, I did very slowly but surely begin to fall head over heels in love with the film. It was at that point then that I bought the novel and read that. You know, it's quite a slim book. I think it's only 208 pages. You know, I read it first 20 years ago, and I read it again in preparation for this episode. And on that initial first reading, I absolutely loved the book. Jacob, have you read uh, Fight Club, the novel? 
Yeah, actually, I did read. I didn't read it in preparation for this episode. Yeah, I did read it. I own it. I own a lot of uh, Chuck's work. I did read it after I saw the movie. Of course, I, I love the movie, so I, I went and searched out the books. You know, the book is good, but I, I really, I think I, I, I really dig the uh, visual medium of the movie uh, more than the book. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you there, Jacob. Same, same sort of scenario as you really read the book after knowing the twist it does lose somewhat now because i say whether that's because you've already seen the film i don't know but as you say visually it does have more of an impact doesn't it yeah i mean uh, i think it was a perfect combination between you know the book for what what it's based on and then you have david fincher and his style you got the actors that are involved um you know the visual effects that were used uh, at, at that time the guy that wrote the screenplay, uh, uh, Jim Ools, yeah, yeah, Ools, you know, who did uh, a few different different touches, and if you listen to the commentary with him and and uh, Chuck, um, he actually gives him Chuck gives him a lot of props for different things that he did um, that he really liked. So I think it all kind of came together in, in like a perfect storm, you know, just a, a solid great movie. Yeah, and you know, twenty years ago when I first read the book, I was still on that sort of upward slope of like completely fallen in love with that film so i probably would have said i thought the book was probably as good as the film because there's certain little things in the book which are not in the film which i thought at the time were really good and, and clever and quite poetic it's like the first time in the book jack ever meets tyler that he meets him on a beach and he sees you know there's this scene which is beautifully described where tyler is dragging these big pieces of driftwood up the beach and jack is sitting there just watching him thinking you know what is he doing and he's sort of sticking them in the ground and arranging them and looking up to the sky, you know, looking at his watch. And then he goes over to him and says, what are you doing? At which point he's sat in the shadow of this little sort of sculpture that he's made out of this driftwood. And Jack looks down and he's formed the shape of a hand. And, and Tyler is sat in the shadow of this hand. And there's this little line about Tyler, as he does, like espousing a lot of wisdom and a lot of Zen sounding stuff where he says... I, I've created this thing and the sun reaches a certain point in the sky that forms a perfect hand. You know, I'm sitting just for this one minute or in the palm of something perfect that I've created. And I thought, wow, you know, that's a, a, that's a beautiful, poetic little sort of thing. Having, you know, read the book again this week in preparation for this episode, that introduction, whilst, yeah, it is nice and poetic, I don't think that is in any way near as effective as the way Tyler's introduced in the book. It, he isn't just introduced. He's sort of like drip-fed in the film. We see these little flashes, these little subliminal single-frame flashes of Tyler Durden in the first part of the film. And there's like a funny little story that Fight Club came under, as most films do, quality control and the quality control people of fox who were watching the film were sending these little memos to david fincher saying well look we think that there's some sort of messed up frames here or there in the first part of the film and fincher was quite bemused by this and he said well they're intentional do you have, have you watched the film you know do you do you not understand what that means and like these little visual flourishes that fincher puts in you know in order to introduce the fact that nothing in this film it is is straightforward. It isn't part of a straightforward narrative, and and Jack himself, as we later find out, because he's obviously suffering from split personality disorder, he is an extremely unreliable narrator. And nothing you about Fight Club's narrative it is objective. It it's all purely subjective because we're being told this story by coming from the mind of this person who is suffering from quite clear and overt mental illness. You know, as as we'll come on to later, I think the film does a lot of things which the book can't get across as much as it is a great book i i think the film is just an incredible adaptation and it just adds so much more that the book simply can't get across yeah and that story of the executives you just said uh, kind of reminds me of a scene in, in a man on the moon 
when Andy Kaufman has a special and he has the kind of vision of the screen kind of go like wanky and, and the executives do the same thing. They're like, what, what's wrong with it? And he's like, no, it's a joke. Like, I want people to think that something's wrong with their TV. So to your point, it's obvious they didn't they didn't finish the film or they didn't really understand it because those those little elements kind of tie into the whole. I'm sure we'll talk about the splicing uh, scenes of, you know, the cock, you know, that they splice into um you know, it's a children's film. So it's kind of like, it's a play on that, I believe. And then also, you know, uh, part of his personality of Tyler kind of coming more into focus of being a realized version of himself versus the Jack character. Yeah. And, you know, that thing about the quality control people not getting, like the sort of various little messages which are weaved throughout Fight Club, the various sort of comedies and, and, and the themes, that is a, a sort of lack of understanding that was also shared by the Fox executives who just didn't understand it. Rumor has it that the owner of Fox, Rupert Murdoch, hated Fight Club. Um, you know, he wanted the film buried. That went on in, into the initial reviews the films had. You know, there was so many respected film critics at the time, like even the likes of Roger Ebert, who just didn't get Fight Club. You know, they, they tore it apart. They called it misogynistic and just... Oh, can you imagine the press would get now? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's what, what they didn't get was how subtle and layered and... I wrote a piece about Fight Club for Film 89, maybe a, a year or two back. And I think that probably sums up far better than I'll be able to hear you know, my sort of analysis of, of the film. One of the things I describe Fight Club as being is it's like an onion, it's multi-layered, and the more times you watch it, each successive viewing, you're peeling back a layer of that onion and it's revealing something new. And it probably took me about five or six viewings before that sort of started to wear off and I wasn't like revealing something boldly new every time. I can't think of a film, you know, off the top of my head that's anywhere near as, as deep as Fight Club that's been, you know, made in sort of like the last 20 years. There's so many different themes in Fight Club. You've got, you know, this thing about disenfranchised you know, young men, white collar workers who are unhappy with their life looking for, you know, just a sort of outlet to sort of, you know, give their mundane dull lives some sort of meaning that's just one aspect of it and then it's got you know a commentary on consumerism again in itself is a com is a commentary on mental illness it there's so many different things the fight club is, is trying to say and, and and you know saying with a lot of success and i think it appeals to a, a, the sort of new generation than that generation when you look at a lot of sort of like if you look at this as a sort of film about rebellion if you go back to the 50s and 60s it was all teenage rebellion yeah. and if you notice the father figure was always the sort of dominating factor and mm. you know you not going out tonight you're not driving that car you're not doing this you're not doing that whereas fight club is more i've had to grow up without a father or i've you know i've got a negligent father yeah you know i've had to find my own way i mean that's sort of um you know we're a, a generation raised by women you know yeah. and stuff like that so there's a lot more sort of reading into the time of the film as well it was probably the first sort of major sort of generation where it become accepted for people to not have both parents look at themselves more objectively think why you know why is my life turned out like this why have i gone to college got my degree done this done that got the job got the house got the the, the ikea furniture i still don't feel fulfilled yeah it's a lack know? of fulfillment and it's, what you say neil is, is just absolutely bang on the nose in, you're in the 50s those young kids which were rebelling against authority would later become the baby boomers yeah and the baby boomer generation who'd had their time of rebellion would then give birth to generation x and i think there's no way to say this without condescending millennials but <laughs> i think very much <laughs> you realize that we're the group the old men well yeah. well look i i look I, I think there's a strong argument and i'm not saying that you know anyone of any age can understand or get the message of fight club but back in 1999, that particular demographic that, whether consciously or subconsciously, or I think pretty much overtly, Chuck Palahniuk was 
targeting was the feeling of sort of disenchantment. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the disenfranchised, disenchanted Generation Xers who had you know worked so hard to get their degrees, as you say, to get their education and to find themselves in these jobs where basically at the end of the day it's a production line, they're a number, there's no real meaning to their lives. Yes. And I know that doesn't you know apply to everyone, but you think back in 1999. And this is a very firm and clear message in Fight Club that I don't think anyone's going to argue against. But then you also had the film Office Space, yeah, which has got a lot of similar overlapping themes to Fight Club. And I don't think it's... It's, it's, it's sort of like a bizarre sort of parallel between the two, really. Like you say, we're, we're talking about a generation that probably hadn't worked with their hands, hadn't worked yeah. manually, hadn't... Yeah. You know, you were more likely now to be sat in a cubicle than you were on a foundry line, you know, and that mm-hmm. type of thing. Like you say, it is, it is almost sort of like, you know, a bit of a sort of emasculated thing as well, I yeah. think. Yeah. Again, you mentioned that about being in a cubicle and the dull, mundane existence. 1999, another film where we have someone who rails against that is Neo in The Matrix. You know, by day, he's this office worker in, I can't even remember, he's an insurance company or something like that. By night then, he's, he's the underground hacker Neo. He, he's, he's looking for some sort of greater meaning to his life, which will burst him out of this bubble of, of dull, grey monotony. Like I say, it's speaking, to, it's speaking to really to that generation, which I suppose is, we're all roughly around the same sort of age, sort of our generation, if you like. I mean, mm. we were younger men then, but yeah, you know, the sort of t- if you were sort of between 20 and 30 at this time, you were kind of relating to the situation that a lot of the angst that was happening here, mm. really, weren't you? Yeah, and, you know, again, it, it, this all feeds back into Tyler's indoctrination of these, like, disenfranchised Generation Xs. It, you know, Generation X, it isn't like the equivalently aged millennials of today. Generation X at that time would have likely felt far more downtrodden, uh, and in particular more isolated in, in, in their mundane jobs, if they had mundane jobs, than the equivalent aged people of today. Because now we have an overwhelming feeling of interconnection due in most part to social media. But back then, even in 99, social media barely existed. It certainly wasn't portable and it wasn't as far-reaching and ubiquitous as it is today. And this is what I think is the reason that Fight Club doesn't or may not resonate as much with... Millennials may not get the same sort of message from Fight Club as our generation did back in, you know, back 20 years ago. They've been brought up or are being brought up, you know, wrapped in like a comforting blanket of, of belonging that Twitter, Facebook and the like has gifted them. When I say gifted, that is in inverted commas, of course. Well, because more people are more entitled to be outraged, I think, now. De- definitely. That's, that's yeah. the key word right there yeah. that, that Neil said, entitled. I yeah. think that, that yeah. generation, the, the the word that comes up the most is the entitlement. Yeah. yeah. And we do sound like a bunch of grumpy old We do, and I don't want to... You know, the last thing we want to do is... To, we just alienated 20% yeah, we're not, yeah. of our audience. We don't mean <laughs> to do that, but Chuck Palahniuk has said that you know, Fight Club is aimed at a particular demographic. Although it, you know, it's a film that can appeal to anyone. You don't have to have been back in 1999. You know, a, a, a young white collar male worker. You know, in your in your early 20s, in a dead end office job to appreciate it. I certainly was another time. I, you know, that was my circumstances, but it was at the time something I could relate to. I could certainly relate to the attractiveness of the things which a character like Tyler Durden is trying to teach. Yeah. The fact that you don't have to be a slave to these worldly possessions. You don't have to fit into the conformity the society places on you. It's things like that. Certainly when you're at an impressionable age, things like that can become attractive. But then when things progress from Fight Club to Project Mayhem, that's where the film takes a certainly dark twist. And any sort of you know attractive elements of the things which Tyler's starting to teach or trying to teach these these young men 
just goes completely too far and that's when I think then Fight Club does become a commentary on something different about indoctrination and effectively what they're doing is they're, they're forming a network of... of well, it's a militia type thing. Yeah, it? it's yeah. like a militia. It, it's basically um, domestic terrorism and, and that's where then Fight Club goes too far because Tyler Durden isn't this sort of well-meaning guy that wants to change society he is a dark twisted fractured he's a you know, he's a charismatic spokesman who's got the right things to say and then uses yeah. it to his own means which is quite worrying when you look at what's happening around the world and particularly what's happening in well both your country and ours jacob at the yeah. moment really <laughs> there's so many layers to fight club as i said in the article i wrote fight club it's like a big box of lego blocks what I make out of those blocks, you know, my interpretation of it could and most likely would be different from the next person's. And I think that's the, the beauty of a film like this. In the article, I, I answered some of the criticisms while I, I was asking the question, why did Fight Club fail at the time? Why did Fight Club get all of those negative reviews from critics who saw it just on a surface level as being full of toxic masculinity and, and a sort of had a very negative message? I was going to say, I think part of the reason maybe it, it failed was, you know, if you look at the maybe the age group of the reviewers, you know, they were from a, an earlier generation. So in speaking to what you were saying before and, and Chuck writing this book and and it kind of it being based a little bit on on his experiences, um, you know, with his his parents and you know, having an office job and all these things. I don't know that these other reviewers or this other generation had that same type of experience. So it might have been hard for them to relate and to see the different things that David Fincher brought to it and and, and Chuck and, and the screenwriters and, you know, everybody in the sense that it's satirical and there are some, some different messages. But I think that's, besides not being marketed correctly, but I think it also, it's a generational thing. Like, you know, it, I, I don't think it was really speaking to the understanding of, of these reviewers who were older at the time. Um, because now with the invention of the internet and, you know, how it's kind of blown up, basically anybody can be a reviewer now. And so now you have this plethora of people, you know, from all age ranges and all uh, types of uh, backgrounds that are reviewing films. So films get a little bit... Uh, different touch than they they did back then and certainly and you know when neil mentioned about the fact that you know going back to the 50s and that generation and the you know the, the rebellion sort of that the went on there against authority you look, you look back at the film like back in 1955 rebel without a cause that film wasn't aimed at you know the older generation it was aimed at teenagers anyone that's doubting the fact that fight club was aimed at a very specific demographic i know obviously we said the internet was in its infancy at the time but the marketing team behind fight club they actually did a series of public service announcements with brad pitt and edward norton and they also did a couple of internet-based public service announcements and they also did ones which were played as, as trailers in the cinema. And one of the ones which Edward Norton was part of was basically saying, he was talking into the camera um, as his character of Jack, and basically saying, if you're watching this now, you are probably a person of a certain age, live, uh, working in a job, you're probably a person who's never fought in a war. Bearing in mind there was no big, uh, you know, as Tyler says, there was no war for our generation. Our war was a cultural war. You know, ours was one against you know a different sort of oppression and i think you know if you look at those even in the main themes of the film it is peppered throughout maybe not as overtly as that public service announcement but fight club definitely is for me a film that is aimed at a specific generation i don't think we should be making excuses for you know yeah you know this is a anyone can enjoy this film and certainly they can of course of course they can anyone can go back now and watch rebel without a course you know we were born for another 20 odd years when that film was made and when that film came up but we can go back now and appreciate it for what it is but you know the, the main thing i'm probably trying to very clumsily say which i probably said a lot better in the article is the fight club 
is aimed squarely at a certain demographic and being of that right age at the time Fight Club certainly got under my skin. I think this was why there was a lot of backlash against the film because people thought, much like when Kubrick released uh, A Clockwork Orange in, I think, was it 1971? People were thinking, and even that Kubrick at the time, he decided to ban the film in Britain because he thought there'd be, you know, copycat violence. And there were, unfortunately, mention of people not getting the right message and are not realising ultimately, and certainly my take on the film is that... This is a film that's trying to teach you a lesson. It's trying to teach you that, you know, as much as all of these things that Tyler is trying to teach does sound attractive, it does sound enlightening, any tips on how to achieve enlightenment the Fight Club may have to offer ends when Project Mayhem begins. Because Project Mayhem ultimately has no benefit, no good end. It's basically terrorism made to look fun and cool, which is, of course, total bullshit. But I think that's another point that Chuck Palahniuk is quite cleverly trying to make as to how people can be indoctrinated by what appears to be a good and an attractive and meaningful idea. And once they get those people on board with that, then they steer them then towards these more dark and subversive and outright evil ideas, for do, want of a better word. Do you think that's Tyler's plan right from the start? Or do you think it just literally matures and germinates as it goes? Because I've always, my sort of take on it has always been, it starts off, Literally just a bit of an adrenaline rush, a bit of, you know, anyone who's ever been smacked in the mouth uh, as much as me. You actually enjoy getting smacked in the mouth after a while, you know. you The line, what can you ever know about yourself if you've never been in a fight, is quite true, I think. I think it starts off as that, and I think it just gets the anger and the sort of, obviously the sort of mental issues as well. Like the sort of snowball effect as it's rolling down the hill, it just gets bigger and bigger. I don't think that's the narrator or Jack or Tyler's intentions to begin with. I think it's just saying that sort of germinates and populates and keeps going. Yeah, I think it's a natural evolution of when you get a load of guys together and they're beating seven bells out of each other and they're, you know, attaining some temporary sort of feeling of enlightenment. They're going into work and as Jack says, the next day after a night of Fight Club, it sort of turns the volume down on things. All your little problems, all the things that would usually bother you just don't bother you anymore. My first trainer used to have a, a phrase that literally used to get yelled at me all the time, which was, you're not made of glass. And it was like, literally, every time you see someone get punched, you'd always yell, you're not, you're not made of glass, you won't shatter as soon as you get hit. Hmm. And it's something, to this day, I still, like, every time something, you know, outside of physicality, something bothers me, I think I'll get past this, I'm not made of glass. And I think it's that type of mentality that's first brought in with... Uh... Jacob, obviously being someone who knows a lot about boxing and, and does a lot of boxing commentary, what is what is your take on Fight Club's use of this sort of controlled sort of vent for male aggression being potentially a positive thing? So, yeah, um, and I'll tie this into what you guys were just talking about. So I, I kind of agree with you, Neil, in the sense that I don't think that it was the initial intention. As we know, Tyler Durden is the same character as narrator Jack. As this part of himself, Tyler Durden being all the things that he wish he was, the way he wish he looked, the way he wish he acted – I think it's slowly starting to take over and it is escalating kind of like you were saying, like a snowball. But I also don't think that their intention was to hurt people because and I'll, I'll give some examples. The fights itself and one of the rules, it's, you know, if somebody taps out, yeah. uh, yell stop or whatever, then they stop it. They don't they're not doing it until the death and they're not doing it to to hurt people. They're doing it to, in a way, get a feeling and cessation um, because they even, they even go as far as going limp, don't they? They don't, you know, even if you right. can't tap, if you know, you can actually, right. you can have compassion for your opponent, yeah? Mm. Right. So, I mean, there, there's rules that, that are designed there for not the intention of hurting, but to, they're getting this feeling of being alive because they're being put in a position that in their normal day, day-to-day day lives, there's no uh, danger, you know, there's no risk. So here it's like, oh, well, I, I, I might get a tooth knocked out or I'm going to get a black eye. But like, like Neil was saying, you, 
you're not going to die. You, you, you know, you're kind of, you're going to be like, wow, you know, like I got in a fight and, you know, I'm still standing, you know, like, you know, Hey, maybe I lost the fight, but you know, I gave a couple good ones in there and, you know, I feel good. And then also, you know, the project mayhem, you know, all their little ventures don't lead to any, like hurting anybody. And it's and even the, the very end when they blow up the, the financial buildings, they have security. They're making sure nobody's in those buildings, you know, so if the intention was to hurt people, I think that, you know, it would be different. I think they, they were trying to cause, you know, kind of a, a shift in the balance of, you know, what the corporate world control and, you know, what people are kind of locked into of like, oh, I, you know, this is what I do day to day, you know, get my coffee, I go to work, do this, do that, and, you know, kind of disrupt that narrative. But also, you know, I think that what where things really turn in the story is when Bob dies, because I don't think they thought that was going to happen. And even Jack says, you know, like, you know, like, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? You know, you guys are running around like crazy. But that was the that was not the the plan. You know, the plan wasn't for anybody to get hurt. But when somebody got hurt, I think that's when things really started to shift to is Project Mayhem, is it going in the right direction? You know, Tyler does make the comment that you have to break a couple of eggs to make an omelet, which is a you know, common phrase. But, you know, again, that's himself talking to himself, trying to justify it to himself in a way. But you can see that Jack is fighting against that. He's saying like, you know, hey, this has gone too far. This is going too far. And that's why he subsequently, you know, basically turns himself in initially before things go way too far as they do in both the film and the book the, the hook for these young men is is that they can experience a lot of them in fact most of them the first time what it feels like to be in a fight and i think what it does is it empowers them because once they've been to fight club a few times and had the crap beaten out of them they're no longer afraid of, of losing a fight and i think when you get to the point in, in in life where you're confident in yourself the fact that if you go into any situation and you learn how to handle it without being afraid, you know, if you can, without resorting to violence, then that gives you a confidence that just seeps into every aspect of your life. Yes, yeah, it's, it's almost a confidence booster in this, that, you know, when they first, the, the first night your ass was like cookie dough and then by the yeah. second week you were carved out of granite. You know, with the, with the boxing analogy there, you do get guys sometimes that go too far, don't you? You do get guys sometimes who jump in a sparring ring and decide it's a, it's a contest and, and you get other guys, I mean, I used to always look at sparring as effective learning, you know, mm. you were sort of learning on the job, but you weren't yeah. trying to hurt your opponent. But I've been in gyms where guys are trying to take my head off. Yeah. You know, because people do, and I think that's the two sides there, because you realise suddenly you could get carried away with this, you could go mm. too far, and I think that's where the sort of Jack and um, Tyler sort of split comes, really. I think that's the sort of split you've got there with these two, isn't it? Like, I think a degree of sort of sense comes back into Jack, doesn't it? When he realises, because like you say, a lot of Project Mayhem really essentially is hijinks to begin with, isn't it? You know, so let's Mischief, just, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. boys being boys, to kind of an awful phrase, but there. Yeah. <laughs> You see, it almost evolves then to well, we could take this a lot further. We could go a lot. We could do a lot more mm. with, and then it becomes a cause. Yeah, and it does. And I think what, what, that it's that scene where um, I think it's the one after the car crash, isn't it? Jack is lying in bed, and Tyler sort of sat over him, and, and he's sort of quietly speaking this this thing of how he sees the future after Project Mayhem. It shows him just to be like the ultimate anarchist, but his final goal isn't to destroy society, or isn't only to destroy society, but to bring mankind down to its previous hunter-gatherer level of existence, living off the land and, you know, certainly not working dead-end jobs to buy mass-produced stuff that we don't need. Tyler intends to bring this, effectively, a post-apocalyptic utopia about by wiping out the credit system. Which is quite telling when you think, when you look at Jack's sort of lifestyle to begin with, when he's got the apartment, he's got the Ikea sort yeah. of furnished apartment, he's got all the, the hover track fitness bike, he's got everything. 
And then when he loses the apartment, he's got nowhere to go. How much money has Jack got? How much how much debt is he in? Hmm. You know, he's he's looking yeah, he's looking for an escape from his life. He, and how how has he got all of those furnishings which are ultimately for him don't mean anything? And again, I think this feeds back into the why I don't think Fight Club is, is a overly macho, misogynistic sort of film. Because ultimately I think that my reading of the message at the end of Fight Club is for all of these things that Jack is trying to do, this creation of Tyler as as a means to sort of empower himself. Ultimately, I think Fight Club is is a love story. And what saves Jack at the end, certainly you know, the thing that brings him back you know, in the book, is, is Marla and his love for Marla. Yeah. So as much as people are saying that you know, this is a film all about toxic masculinity, well, it's, it's ultimately saying that the one thing that he didn't have in his life, which through you know, ultimately you know, Fight Club and these... You know, we haven't even mentioned the self-help groups, which you know, is a massive thing in both the film and the should book. We, should we do what they do and just jump back and do a flashback? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> little flashback humour there. Flashback humour, yeah. Yeah, so even though it was seen as like this t- testosterone field tale, you know, only made to appeal to men, I think the final message is one that contradicts a- such a view. And it was, you know, it was a love for and a love of a woman that healed Jack's fractured mind. And although he may have realised things a little too late, I think that that's what the message is for me anyway. Yeah, but I also think that trying to like label stuff as only appealing to a certain group, I, I think that's just really a, a cop-out because... You know, I, I can see a movie about, you know, like a love story and it can involve in the main character can be a woman and I can like the movie and it doesn't mean, you know, that movie's only for women or, you know, a, a something that has like maybe uh, like Moonlight, for example, um, that I really loved. Um, you know, has the the homosexual uh, uh, theme behind it. So, you know, I think it's, again, it's an easy way for people to, like, judge things without really, like, really looking into them and taking it for what it is. And, and it, I'm not saying that everybody has to like this movie, but I think that it does, it can appeal to a bunch of different people. And I think that you have brought up a good point about the love story. I think there are some really nice elements to it. And also the, the camaraderie of the uh, of the guys themselves, you know, being part of something, you know, the friendship between Tyler and, and the narr- narrator. I think there's some, some very nice scenes in there and, and some tender moments. That theme can, re- uh, can, you know, be relevant to anybody. Well, you know, the only reason, Jacob, I ever asked the question of does this appeal only to a certain demographic was when I was trying to answer why Fight Club, a film which it's been sat now for quite a long time at number 10 on the IMDb Top 250. You know, it is an extremely highly regarded film, but upon that initial release back in 1999, it wasn't a success. It didn't have a very successful theatrical run based on a budget of... 63 million dollars it pulled in a worldwide gross of 108 million dollars which when you factor in you know the expensive marketing certainly for a film like fight club which as much as fox may not have known how to market it you know the marketing campaign i remember was very effective you know maybe it didn't get across the central message of the film but it certainly it intrigued me and, and it did ultimately tie in with the style of finch's film but you know to make 108 million dollars worldwide on a budget of 63 million dollars is not in any way a success and, you know, I'm just trying to answer that question. Why did Fight Club fail initially? And maybe it was a little ahead of its time. But also, I would love to see the figures because, you know, DVD sales and Blu-ray sales, streaming sales, I bet you that this movie actually did make some money. Yeah, oh, I was, no, was going to say, I was thinking exactly the same thing. There's no way this film's sitting at number 10 on the IMDb 250 yeah. and not being seen by people, is it? You know, it's not It's not a niche film. It's, it's something, I, I, I've got to be honest, it's something that recently this week, and I've mentioned to a few people I'm doing it, everyone's reaction is positive. Yeah, Everyone's yeah. reaction yeah. is, I love that film, you know? Yeah. Because I think that film speaks to, I think it speaks to a certain generation. I think it 
the message I get from it now is very different to the message I got. I've, I actually found myself, when I watched it as, as a youngster, if you like, mm-hmm. I found myself relating to it as in that could be me. Yeah. Whereas now I actually feel quite sorry for Jack. Yeah, I, 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 I see the... But I think there's messages there throughout the film for yeah. different sort of age groups and mentalities. Like, yeah. And certainly the way I saw Fight Club back when I was in my early 20s is certainly different to how I watch it now. Back when I was like that age, I'd certainly not been in a fight to the extent that I have since been in. And dealt with it in the way that I would now. I, I gotta say, I'm in a point of my life now where I would rather just say to someone, "Look, if you persist like this, this is what's going to happen." You know, and, and talk. And, you, yeah, it's far more. You sound like Chris Eubank when you do yeah, that. It is. It's far more satisfying to talk your way out of a situation, yeah. to walk away from it, knowing full well that you've avoided a physical confrontation just by using your mouth. But that's having the confidence to do it. Is exactly. It's because of the lessons learned throughughout. That's right. Like, to yeah. Get to that point, didn't it? And that's why I say that it, it is such a great film that you can watch it 20 years on, still enjoy it just as much as when you did back when you were in your early 20s, but just take you know different things away from it. I've had so many different conversations about this one film with different people, and they've told me different things that they've taken away from the film, things which I've never considered. Yeah, I think there's, there's there's so many messages there and there's so many things to be taken there, isn't there? And like you say, it's easy just to brand it a fighting film. It's not, nowhere near a fighting film, let's be honest. No, it's not. It's about a young man's struggle, basically, isn't it? It it's is. It's about, you know, finding your own purpose in life and, as Jacob was alluding to as well, no one went to put the brakes on when enough is enough, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's also a very, you know, we haven't really touched on this, it's a hilarious film. Oh, oh it, you it's know, there, there's so There's so many great, like, little one-lines and... And just the the little things that, that the characters do that um, you know that I've seen through uh, multiple viewings. Um, so you know it's it probably peg it as a as a dark comedy for for me. You know it's it's got my sense of humor and it, I I really like that that kind of stuff. But uh, I think it it gets kind of shit on a lot. You know maybe not now, but at the time. You know I think a lot of a lot of the maybe the. Uh, the reviewers missed the humor. To say what I was saying before. I think maybe it was a little bit of ahead of its time. You know, now that we can, now we have some distance from it. We can see that it's it's you know it's highly regarded. You said it's on the what the number ten mm-hmm. or you said number ten on the IMDb. It is, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's know, still there. The, you know, the, I actually put out my article which I did over a year ago for for Film Eighty Nine that it was at number ten, and I've just checked now. It's still at number ten. And you know, before we go into the sort of technical aspects of the film, you say there about you know it, it being a dark comedy. The way I summed it up in, in my piece was on all fronts, Fight Club is it, a perfectly crafted, richly layered film that like demands and rewards repeat viewings, and I can think of no other film that's remotely similar to come before it or since. You know, it could be argued that it's a film that straddles multiple genres or, more accurately, doesn't actually benefit such a specific categorization. You know, I think it shows Fincher at the very top of his game, although we'll come to that later when we talk about other films he's made before and since. You can say the same about the cast as well. Has Edward Norton been better than he has in this film? And he's, he's been... He's been in films like American History X. He's been in Primal Fear. Well, it's, it's the thing we haven't touched on. I mean, these two were the two sort of hottest properties around us. They time, were. They you certainly know? were. Yeah, because I think people forget how now, much clout Edward Norton yeah. had at the time. And that's the thing. When, when you look at Pitt now, I mean, Pitt, he's kind of gone through his big surge, but he's still a very relevant star now, yeah. isn't he? Like, this was probably him at his height and taking yeah. a sort of risky career choice after Seven as well. It would have been quite easy for him to go back to the sort of Meet Joe Black sort of roles. Oh, I think he'd actually done Meet Joe Black in between yeah. Seven and Fight Club. Yeah, yeah. No, he did. Actually, the story is is that um, David Fincher really wanted Brad for this part, 
and he basically I, I believe he waited at Brad's house until he got home and he was he was just finishing up me Joe Black and he basically I think for hours he waited there until he could talk to Brad and basically tell him you got to read this you know and it, he basically agreed to do it after that yeah. yeah and like you said about the sort of comedy value as well Pitt's actually got really good comic timing hasn't he but this this for me is the sort of pinnacle of the sort of one line and sort of deadpan sort of humour that Pitt's really good at did it a bit with 12 Monkeys but it was you know over exaggerated etc yeah. and you can see films like The Mexican and stuff which are just out and out comedies yeah, yeah, yeah. and he works well in them but this film you know to do it in that sort of subversive manner and keep that sort of tone throughout mm. it really is you know it's a stellar performance from Pitt and I think, you know, the thing that makes it so much easier for Brad Pitt and Edward Norton to succeed in this film, and I saw a tweet go up yesterday, it was about one thing we failed to do as, as commentators on film, and again, this, this applies to the whole of film Twitter and to, you know, film lovers in general. I think what we all fail to do from time to time is we don't give proper credit to the writers. And Jim Ools, even though he was working off, you know, a pretty amazing uh, novel, uh, uh, source material, that screenplay for me is absolute perfection. The use of narration in Fight Club is as good as any narration I've seen in a film. And a lot of people say, as we've mentioned before on, on this podcast, narration can be used, and it can be misused as a crutch for poor storytelling. But God damn it, I think the narration in Fight Club is just one of the film's strongest aspects. It's a great way for Edward Norton to get across quite a lot of the deadpan humour. You can only imagine what it was like to film this film, knowing full well they were having to overlay narration on top of that and to time it. Because so much of the narration, and I've watched this film so many times in preparation for this episode, and again, I'm still noticing little things, like when Edward Norton is then breaking the fourth wall and talking into the camera, and then it's segueing back then into narration, and it, you know, the editing in the film is, is just is, is remarkable. The visuals, and it's all held together by this amazing screenplay by Jim Ulls, and how quotable is this film? But it's only quotable in the context of, of Fight Club. You know, it, it's not one of those films I would quote quite often in day-to-day -day life, but you meet someone who loves the film and you instantly start quoting it. And, and I think that's a sign of, of, a, of a great screenplay is when so much of that film sort of becomes, I hate to use this word, but iconic. Yeah, it is. And I gotta say every time, every time I take any sort of form of like credit or anything like that or that voice in my head every time the things you own end up owning you, you. <laughs> it just yeah. comes back and gets me yeah. every time like but uh yeah it is. it is and like you say you know with Fincher's style as well I, I didn't know about Danny Boyle I could see perhaps Danny Boyle doing something with this but uh, I think Fincher's definitely you know it's easy to say now with hindsight but uh there's Look, not many directors could have taken this on and yeah. put that much visual flair no. and kept it the way it was you, because it could have look. quite easily gone into parody, especially with the, the fourth wall stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, fourth wall stuff, I mean, we see it nowadays with a sort of Deadpool. And it's really useful for comedy, but in dark comedy, it's very hard. It's very hard to keep yeah. it sort of straight, straight laced when you're doing that. And I think, again, like it's the subversive, rule-breaking rule nature of Fight Club. You've got all these little things going on. Like when, when Jack is talking to us about Tyler and the things Tyler does, all of his, his night jobs and his job as a, as a projectionist. You've got him in frame talking to us. You've got Brad Pitt in the background as Tyler Durden. And then reality sort of blurs as Tyler Durden starts talking to us, saying, you know, it's called a cigarette burn. And he points up to the top right of frame and this little cigarette burn appears. And it made me think back to that moment in Pulp Fiction where, where Vincent and Mia pull up outside Jack Rabbit's limbs and she says, don't be such a square. And she draws the outline with her hands of a square. Yeah, you know, we see that little on-screen thing. And it's, it's the only time in Pulp Fiction where Tarantino sort of breaks us out of reality. 
Well, but it, 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 it works. Fight Club is peppered with all of this sort of stuff. When you look at it, you know, whenever you get a film that's very sort of, if you like, in inverted commas, cleverly done, you could go on about how many times they didn't trip up and how many times mm-hmm. they didn't. Finch is not afraid that, we say, the banquet hall, when he's talking about him being the sort of, like, king of, like, urban catering or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Urban terrorist catering. Tyler Durden is serving people at a table that Ed Norton is sat at, eating, and sort of very politely sort of, you know, mopping his lips with a napkin. Yeah. None of it makes sense. You no. know, when he, when he goes to the airport and Tyler jumps in the car. And the car him. drives off. And then when they get to the house on Paper Street, he says, where's your car? And Tyler says, what car? Yeah. And again, the layers of... of and that's not doing, that's not doing Finch a disservice. Like you said, I think it's more a sort of anarchistic approach of, I'm going to tell my story the way I'm going to tell it, but I'm going to have fun with it as well. It goes know? back to that thing of, Jack is... A completely unreliable narrator. I, I was going to say, literally, you know, I've told you this numerous times, and people are sort of call bullshit. And I swear to God, this is true. The sixth sense twist. Straight away, I went, "Oh, so he's dead then." I, if anyone ever told me they got the twist to the Fight Club, I would no. call that man a liar. I would. I would. <laughs> if anyone went into that film and saw that blind and worked out halfway through that, that, that this is what's happening, they should be solving crime for a living. They're the next Sherlock Holmes. Maybe the only people that could claim that is if they read the book. Yeah, I was going to say, if, but if you went in blind, you know, and did that, that would amaze me. You would have oh. my respect forever. <laughs> full, full disclosure, I had no clue, and it was part of the reason that sort of Jay did that first viewing for me. I didn't have a clue. Looking back now, there's plenty of clues there. Oh, it's, it's, it's thrust at you. But it's the, thrust at you. the really great thing is I can see why people like me, or, or, or why anyone really, wouldn't have got that on first viewing. Fincher, he sort of... He's, he's toying with you. He, he is toying yeah. with you, and he's putting these other little things in which are sort of pulling you back. You know, the little lines where he says, for some reason I was reminded of my first fight with Tyler. Now, this is the bit where Jack is in his boss's office trying to blackmail his boss, and when his boss tells him to go fuck himself, Jack starts beating himself up, and in the end he says the line, for some for some reason I was reminded of my first fight with Tyler, as we later find out in the film, because at the time he was fighting himself, himself just yeah. as he's doing now in the office. And this is where Fincher is so masterful, because they do a great job in the beginning, because, you know, as he's talking to this person... They don't pan to people, you know, that are in the bar or, you know, that see them fighting and, and to like an expression of like, what, this guy's crazy. He's talking to himself or he's mm. fighting himself. They have Tyler in, in the in there when he's handing them the beer. You know, later you see that the beer falls on the ground. But at that moment in the in the film, Tyler gets the beer and, and takes a swig off of it. So, you know, they're very, uh, you know, like Neil said, very clever in how, how they reveal little bits to us. So they're giving us little clues, but like not too much. You know, there, there's still that presence of Tyler and people are responding to Tyler because even like when they're fighting in an underground, people are like looking at him. You know, Edward Norton, uh, Jack is off to the side. You know, you, you kind of get that that feeling like, oh, well, this is a real person, you know, but it's really him outside of himself. You know, so in which we later find out. So it's 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 just really you know great work from from Fincher to be able to to weave that tell because I, like you, Sky, I didn't have any idea until it's revealed. You know, and then it's kind of like, oh wow, that's that's a, such a great little twist. And it's one of those twists, like you say, it it, it comes and it, they almost give you a sort of little breather, don't they? After it, you know, with Norton sort of collapsing on the bed, you know, and a little bit of narration, it's like just reinforcing to you. Yeah, this is right. This is my imaginary friend, if you like, or this is the second half, the other half of me, or mm. whatever. 
say I can remember watching that the first time, and I was like, "Wait, what?" You know, yeah, it was like yeah. everyone just went the same sort of reaction, didn't they? I, I didn't think right. I, I, I got to say, I don't think at the time I was intellectually or emotionally capable to deal with that twist. No, <laughs> I, I don't think I was, and I think that is what my problem was at the time. The problem wasn't the film. The problem was me. The problem was I went in with those expectations of this is going to be from A to B to C. This is going to be a young guy who gets involved with some people who introduce him to this sort of attractive underground fighting world and it's going to be a very clear you know then he meets a girl they fall in love and he realizes that you know this new friend he's made isn't for him he's going to come out at the end uh, you know learn his lesson yeah learn his lesson it's going to be very very prototypical (laughs) sort of three-act traditional storytelling structure and then when a rug is completely pulled out from under you and it makes you question the entire almost two hours of film that you've just seen i just don't think my tiny generation xp brain could handle it at the time. <laughs> Definitely. And they use Marla very well, too, because, you know, all the conversations that they have with uh, that he has with Marla, you know, she's talking to him as he's Tyler because that's that's what, who she knows. But they, they, they're so clever in how they, they, they're using the exact right words and just the, the expressions and, and everything. So and then even with you know how he, you know he even comments on it that you know they're never in the same room at the same time just like his parents you know yeah they, he said my parents pulled that exact same trick when I was growing up and right it, this little things like that pull you back it works so well though it's so in a way it's almost genius you know like just how they were able to to weave that together yeah right. but it's, it's like you say it's done in such a way that it doesn't require the sort of tricks and the sort of camera angles it's it, a lot of the stuff when they're sort of talking in the kitchen in Paper Street, it's very awkward. And it's very stilted. She's got her back turned to him and stuff like that. So it, it sort of lends itself to the fact that where he thinks he's sitting, he might not actually be sitting. Where he thinks that you know Tyler stood in the doorway, he might actually be stood in that doorway. It wouldn't make any difference to Marla because she's got her back turned anyway. A lot of the sort of like the dialect between the two, because let's be honest, we haven't talked enough about Marla yet. But no, Helena Bonham Carter's never been better. I think she was perfect for this role. They actually yeah. wanted Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, I heard that. I heard that. I like Witherspoon. I think she's doing great stuff in uh, Big Little Lies, but she would have been totally miscast for this movie, I think. Yeah, and especially Reese Witherspoon back then. It would have been great. I'm not saying she wouldn't have had the range to do it, but just from the sort of perspective of just having not enough of that sort of weirdness. I mean, I mean, Helena Bonacart has fully embraced that throughout the years now, and yeah. you know, but she just had that sort of edge to it, you know? And yeah. That that first sort of interplay between the two of them when when he confronts her at the group and she's just literally just walking through the traffic, but again if you notice with Jack as well he's not a nervous fumbling guy around her. It's not as if he's never talked to a girl before. Mm. You know he's you know when she when he says about exchanging numbers and he, you know she's like yeah whatever and he's like well let's not make too big a thing out of this. He's, yeah. he's playing it pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's giving it as good as he gets, but she sort of ramps it. She turns her up to eleven. You know she's she's the sort of wild sort of child like isn't she? Like whereas he's just very sort of like sort of closet and anarchy you know she's like she's yeah, not afraid to wear a hat on a sleeve at, at, at that point for Jack he is just going to these self-help groups because it's the only thing that can help him sleep whereas she is going for the free coffee you know <laughs> for whole different more selfish reasons I think she's going for entertainment in yeah that yeah it's almost like it's almost yeah. bored yeah it's almost bored and it's just like well, you know it's Get the kick out of you know hearing because there's a there's a scene when Chloe's basically saying no one will have sex with her and you know she has you know pornograph uh, porn, pornos and you know a yeah, boob and all this stuff and you could see in the corner you know she's laughing she's like laughing at, at, at this you know lady revealing herself in this like you know desperate this desperate uh, time 
And uh, but you know that's just her character. She just like gets a kick out of these these stories. Well, what she says is cheaper in a movie, and you get free coffee. Yeah, <laughs> it's like she is viewing it as, oh, like you say, she's viewing it as like some sort of bizarre sort of bleak comedy that's happening in front of her eyes, isn't she? Oh, they also comment on when they're when they're first kind of like hugging, and they're they're saying why they they do it, and you know she does say that that line, but she also says uh, when he, she asks him uh, the narrator why he does it, and he says you know what like when people think you're dying, they, people really, and then she finishes it and says listen, you know like I think there's that aspect of it too. That's right, yeah, they they listen instead of you know waiting for their turn to talk, and you know we say about Pitt and Norton being perfect in their roles, this, this film wouldn't work without Helena Bonham Carter. Her character is is equally as important as theirs. There's like a bird-like quality to it. Like that little top knot that she's got. And, and Fincher always said, he said, that top knot always bothered me because she insisted on it. And every time I was trying to frame her and that top knot went out of frame, it would bother me. Fincher's a very visual director. He directed music videos. I did actually know this, but he actually worked for ILM. He actually worked on Return of the Jedi. Yeah. And he worked on uh, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. But, you know, he's an extremely yeah. visual director. But he was these little things, and like her hair. He said the little strands of hair that would fall in front of her face would always bother me because I'd always be concerned about the continuity of where the hair was in the, in the last shot. But it was these little things that she brought to the role. Like, you watch the little things she does. When Jack confronts her in the, the cancer meet self-help group, and she she's at the coffee thing, and she just lets the coffee cup overflow. Little, little <laughs> yeah. things like that, which yeah. and, and apparently in in the commentary Edward Norton gives on the Fight Club DVD and Blu-ray, when they were filming that scene, he didn't even notice these little things that she was doing. It was only after he watched the film in the theater that he was like, "Holy shit! Look, you know, I didn't notice any of these little things that the Helena was doing." Uh, and what I will say, I know it's a big bugbear of our friend Bill Scurry. She might be an English actress, but. Uh... That accent's on point. Right, Jacob, maybe we're not the best ones to judge, but is Helena Bonham Carter's accent on point? I, I think it is, although there are, you know, when I was re-watching the film, you know, I watched it a few times for this episode, there was a couple of scenes where, I think mean, when uh, Brad Pitt's taking her out of her apartment when she's, like, trying to kill herself, taking the pills, there's a couple, her accent kind of, like, you know, comes through, but and overall, she, I think she did an, a, a tremendous yeah. job. You know, she's so funny, and she's just so great, and and I believe, um, you know, I was listening to the commentaries, uh, Helen uh, asked them kind of more about their character, and, and basically was based off of, like, Judy Garland, like, in the later stages of her career, and they even he would even call her Judy on set. And that was kind of like kind of her motivation to like, you know, this kind of star that had seen such great heights at, at one point very young on and then had kind of had a downward trajectory and it was, you know, trying to stay above the madness, um, which I thought was interesting. That for me would tie into my sort of interpretation as the type of person Marla Singer is. Now, I think that she's someone who comes from money and for whatever reason just occupies the existence that she does. Because in the book, there's, made, there's reference made to Marla's mother. Now, a lot of the fat that they use, that which they render and turn into soap, they actually get from Marla's mother. Because Marla's mother is constantly undergoing liposuction. And then, because she thinks that Marla is too skinny and emaciated, she actually sends in the post her own liposuction fat, and says to Marla, <laughs> look, go to this clinic and get this, you know... Isn't it for her lips in it as well? Yeah, for her, yeah which, which uses to, to puff yeah. her lips up. 
which is really twisted, really messed up. But if her mother is able to afford frequent liposuction, then clearly she, she comes from a little bit of money. And I definitely get the impression that there's, there's a classier background, a Marla Singer, than she lets on. That's what I was going to say when Jacob was saying about the accent slipping. I've always taken it that she's quite well-to-do and quite sort of rich girl playing poor girl. And then when she's running from the cops and she's coming out with like, a lot of what she says is like, she doesn't call herself a fuck-up. She says something like... Infectious she's, human waste. It's very sort of educated the yeah. way she does it. It is, yeah. And it's almost like a sort of persona slipping a little bit because, you know, I'll, you know, I'll hide on whatever she's annex she's taking, isn't it? Yeah. And stuff like that. So there might be something to that. I don't know. Or, or her accent might have just slipped a little bit. She is just a, a fantastic character. And it's like this, the interplay between this little trio that is just one of the things that holds Fight Club together. And... Hey, can we say one more thing about Marla? Um, probably maybe one of the most controversial things. So the original line that she was supposed to give that the studio had some tremendous problems with was, I want to have your abortion yeah. when she's having sex. And so David Fincher made a deal with the studio saying, okay, I'll take out that line, but I'm going to put in something else and you can't basically exit. Whatever it is, that's what it is. And they said they agreed. And so then she comes up to the line, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. And they hated that even more. <laughs> and they like begged Fincher to take it off. But he was like, nope. We made a deal, and that's that's basically how it got it stayed in. Although you could see on the the, the deleted scenes uh, and alternative scenes on the special DVD, you can see the line, the original line that uh, as she spoke. Cameron pulled a similar trick with Terminator, didn't he? When he sort of filmed that really sort of hackneyed ending at the end, when it was um, they were getting taken away in the ambulance, and it was Skynet. Yes, and he filmed it deliberately bad because even if you see I mean the it, ADS, yeah, the no, you're absolutely well. right yeah it does but he filmed the sort of deliberately bad ending so he could do his ending with the road because yeah. he didn't want to do the road scene did they yeah it, that, you know, that line I, the question is which is worse I, I, I personally think the abortion line is, is worse for us because uh, I don't know grade school is pretty, <laughs> that's, that's pretty crazy the grade school bit plays differently over here because the first thing I had to ask myself back then was well how old is grade school because <laughs> We don't use that term over here. <laughs> Either way, it's completely fucked up, and it's just a wonderful little insight into how completely messed up. But like Jacob was saying as well, it's quite a, it's a bold move from Fincher as well because through it, it's like don't fuck with my movie. Yeah, that's right. Which, if you fuck with my movie, I will come back at you tenfold. Just you know? like Fox fucked with him off with Alien Three. Yeah, you know, talking about the visuals of the film, Jacob. Obviously, you're a big fan of of Fincher. He was a very visual director. And was, the cinematographer on Fight Club was Jeff Cronenworth, who was the the son of Jordan, who did the cinematography on Blade Runner, a film which Fincher said he absolutely loves. What's your take on, on the sort of visual style of Fight Club? It, you know, it's very, it has the the, Vin, the Fincher touch, I think, to, to all over it. You know, the fingerprints are all over it. Again, a, a lot of the visual aspects of this movie, the acting and everything, they should have been up for awards. And unfortunately, because of maybe the controversy around, the, you know, and, and the the reviews it wasn't but i think it's it's you know stunning it's it's some really great stuff and you got to look at the way the film opens with that tour of jack's brain but i'm pretty sure that that's one of the last bits of effects work which were done it was actually done on a separate budget to the rest of the film because fincher insisted on that opening but the studio were like no no it's too costly there's no need for it and it was only when they were seeing the rest of the film seeing it come together they agreed and then they actually integrated that introduction which is obviously very you know special effects heavy but well, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a music video essentially from a music video yeah. director isn't it yeah. Yeah. yeah Fincher does this in almost all his films though he always has a great opening oh look at the um, the, the opening credits to Panic Room which are just like the biggest homage to Saul Bass and you know yeah. the opening to like you know North by Northwest yeah that opening to Panic Room is and again you know it, it is pretty much an homage to, to Hitchcock's film but it's such a 
cool atmospheric opening. Look at the opening to seven. To seven. Yeah, the girl in the dragon tattoo. It's a it's a great opening. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's like but, a music video. It's a it's um what is it? The, I think it's an immigrant song with the Led Zeppelin, but it's like a re redone version. Mm-hmm. But it's it's very like very very to his like video uh, music video days. It's very just you know metallic and just you know gritty and and dirty but it's just amazing they, you know they, there is a dirt and a grunge to fight club that it's a beautiful looking film but it, it's just it's, there's a layer of grime on everything it's particularly towards the end of the film and i'll tell you what this time around as well i noticed that the cinema plex that went an argument uh, behind has got seven years in tibet showing yeah. with a t missing you know everything like you say like you can shoot new york two ways can you you can shoot new york as in uh you know a sort of great sort of homage to like you know the sort of the 50s and 60s when yeah. these wonderful skyscrapers and everything's sunny and everything's great or you can have the sort of dirty grimy sort of 70s sort of new york yeah. and this tends to mix the two together they can but it's not it's not new york it's no but that's what i mean if you look at the city like, the city like that's, delaware, yeah it's, it's yeah. wilmington delaware that's and, I mean, and again the, i think yeah. there, were, there were issues that they didn't want to openly acknowledge of where this film was supposedly set no i was just saying if you look at where you can shoot oh yeah 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 so you can yeah you can yeah you can shoot new york like woody allen shooting manhattan making yeah. it look beautiful right. and and then, and then you Very can shoot it. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you, can, you got the romanticized view, like you say, Neil. And they've also got the William freaking French yeah, connection. This, yeah. this seems to mix the two in together. Mm, like all, yeah. the, you know, some of, some of the places where they're like the restaurants are very sort of you know, the hotels, the ballrooms are very sort of lavish. Yeah, and then you can walk out the steps and onto the streets, and you know, it looks like the sort of streets are oozing with sort of you know dirt and grime. You know, and this is one of the things that amazed me researching this film that I didn't previously know is that house on Paper Street. It was built from the bottom up by the by the production. Right. Yeah. The interior was built on stage sixteen on the Fox lot. And again, going back to Blade Runner and, and an homage to it, Fincher said that all that water running down the walls was his homage to Blade Runner. The cinematography in the film, like the editing, like the writing that holds everything together, it is so precise. Bearing in mind how visual a film it is. Look, look at the use of effects. You know, initially the film opens, and when when you come out of the you know the the, the sort of brain tour, and we see that it's actually Tyler with a gun in Jack's mouth. We then see the camera pan down to the foundations of all the surrounding buildings, showing all all of the explosives which are set to blow up. Now, was that instantly a sort of slap in the face? Because I am I right in thinking the original sort of Twin Towers attack was the same sort of thing with the white. Power, it was. The white it was. Yeah, it was supposed to be um, a reference to the original ninety six. Uh, uh, attempt on the World Trade Center is in '96, Jacob. That they initially um, tried to, to bomb the, the World Trade Center with, with a van packed full of explosives. It was 1993, so I was three years out. It was carried out on February 26, 1993, when a truck bomb detonated below the North Tower of the World Trade Center. So they well, go. I'm not right in thinking it was a white panel van like that. In in one of the commentaries, um, Fincher or or Chuck Palahniuk, he actually mentions the fact that it is a reference back to that. Um, obviously, when our commentary was recorded, this was a uh, pre- very, diff- very different world. Yeah, it was yeah. a different world. This was again, you know, thinking back, this was a different world. This was pre two thousand and one, September the eleventh. Terrorism in America wasn't really perceived to be that big of a threat. That was like, no, pre nine eleven. No, it wasn't. Was it? It was nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, it, it, the, the whole landscape changed on, on September the eleventh, and and terrorism was very sadly brought smack bang into you know the heart of America. Yeah, that the closest they had gotten. Previous to that was uh, Hawaii, which is mm. quite a bit of the ways off the coast of, of the of the West Coast. You know that when the you know America's 
relationships to wars, you know, besides the, you know, uh, revolution and the um, civil war, obviously, other than that, war isn't really fought on our soil. It's usually in a foreign land, you know, whether it's Vietnam or Korea or, you know, you know, England. And, you know, there's so many different places that that the war has happened, but in a, not to that point that I could remember uh, since, you know, like I said, the, the civil war that um, it had been fought on the soil. Yeah, so I'm just saying, it just literally just came to me then. I could have had some sort of negative impact almost straight away because it was so sort of alien to a lot of these reviewers to think that this and terrifying as well, frightening as well oh, that God, it could yeah. happen. Yeah, because you know you say about the you know the aim of Fight Club was never to hurt people. Obviously, as things progress, then people are hurt, and certainly in the book, you know Tyler actually kills Jack's boss. The yeah. big smiley face on the building that we see in the film, where they've they've all gone into the into the building at night. There's no one in there. They blow the windows out. They set fire to them. They make it look like a big smiley face. Yeah. In in the book, it's actually Jack's offices. Yeah, they go he, to. He, he kills him, doesn't he, with the same sort of thing they use with the computers, doesn't he? When he puts the funnels, yeah, the, that's the right. Into yeah, they, the, uh, they fill the monitors full of uh, uh, and uh, gasoline. And a, yeah, you can say you can smell gasoline on his yeah. hands. And it was a lot more castration as well in the book. There was, yeah, yeah, yeah. They actually were castrating people in the book as opposed to in the film, where they're just threatening to do it. What do you think of that Dust Brothers score? I love it. Yeah, I own I own the CD. I own the CD, and because I'm lazy now, I can't be bothered to dust off my iPod <laughs> and charge that up. I've actually just been listening to it on repeat on Spotify. Exactly. Have you heard before Fight Club a score like this? I I can't think of, of, of a film that's got anything like the use of like grungy, grimy breakbeat music. There's there's very little that's organic about the soundtrack, but the type of music is completely fitting with the visuals. You know, it's never going to get credit as one of one of the you know the most memorable scores because it's not done by someone like Hans Zimmer or, or John Williams but I, I think it is probably the most fitting music I've seen in any film the only other score I can think of is this movie called Ransom with Mel Gibson that and I think Billy Corgan did kind of a Ransom was 95 so that 96 was that, 96 so that would have you know that would have been before Fight Club whether or not that was an influence on the Dust Brothers I don't know but it is just an absolutely phenomenal. Would you call it a score or a soundtrack? It's it's produced music that is specifically made for the film. So as much as it's not a traditional orchestral score, you know what I think is a bit of both. Really, I think it's a, I could consider it a score though because it's 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 layered over the the film and it. I think you're supposed to like a, a good score does. It, it it gets you to emit emotion. You know, kind of lead you. You know, and I think you know the traditional way of, of scoring a film, like you said, is through an orchestra through the means of, you know, that kind of uh, instruments. As we progressed into the future, you know, the electronic age, you know, now you get scores like this where, you know, I think they're just still scores to me. Yeah. yeah. And again, you know, we're talking about the visuals of the thing, one of the things I think we should mention is Michael Kaplan, the costume designer, and Tyler's wardrobe. Yeah, I, I will often have you ever tried to find that red leather jacket, because I, I, I almost yeah, bought that leather no. jacket about six times. Mate. Funny, funny you should say, Neil. <laughs> You have. Yeah, no, I haven't. I've not, no, I've not bought it, but I've done a bit of research on eBay, and you can pretty much get every little bit of clothing within reason that Tyler didn't wear. Certainly, you can get replicas of it. The thing with that jacket is, the jacket as it appears in the film, if you were to wear it in real life, it is a hell of a lot more red than it appears in the film, because obviously, you know, the way that um, Jeff Cronenworth filmed it, and then later in post, they sort of subdued a lot we of the colours. Yeah. You know, Fight Club is a pretty dark film. A lot of it's yeah. filmed at night. That jacket is bright, bright, bright red. <laughs> and if you were to wear that in any sort of normal lighting, it would look pretty ridiculous. 
The, the question you've got to ask yourself is, a guy living in such squalor in Paper Street, how the hell has he got such a good wardrobe? Obviously, as it turns out, he's not a real person. And it's Jack sort of transposing how he would like to see himself upon this sort of right. fractured bit of his personality. But again, but, you've got the sort of, when, when his apartment blows up, one of the things that he references, Jack, is his, his wardrobe was almost... Almost complete. Almost complete. Yeah. So it's, it's almost as if, you know, and then you get Tyler going, you're not your fucking khakis. You know, yeah. so it's almost as if, like, secretly he was trying to conform by buying the... Because the, he mocks the sort of DKNY and the Calvin yeah. Klein and... You know, it's, it's, a, it's a contradiction. It's a, it's a purposeful contradiction. He's always it? telling himself you can look yeah. fucking cool from a thrift shop. You could look a lot cooler yeah. from a thrift shop than you could go into sort of like, you know, some big department store and buying a branded sort of like. Well, what, what does he say when you're on the bus looking at the Calvin Klein advertisement? He says self improvement is masturbation. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's completely contradictory because Brad Pitt is coming across as this perfectly chiseled guy. He's in perfect <laughs> shape. Well, if you're gonna, if you're gonna pretend that you're somebody, you know, you, you might as well be Brad Pitt, right? I, yeah. I think until sort of Chris Hemsworth came along, I think he was the go-to men's health question, wasn't he? Every yeah. time you'd read a men's That's health question, right, yeah. it'd be how do I get I, ads like Brad, Brad like Pitt? Brett, yeah. and, you know, That's why I, one of the rules in, in the Fight Club is uh, no shirt, no shoes. You know, yeah. so they can <laughs> so we can show off his physique. Yeah. I mean, I think we're all we're all 100% heterosexual men, but that bit when he sort of like just flexes his abs, you thought if I do enough sit-ups, I could look like that, and you just know. I can remember reading uh, Gunnar Peterson, he does a lot of work with um, The Rock and uh, specifically Stallone as well, and someone asked him, how do you get abs like Brad Pitt? And he said, what you need to do is invent a time machine and somehow convince Mr. Pitt that you should admit you, <laughs> yeah. said, because you won't get abs no. like Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, they, they picked the perfect guy there to play this sort of um, idealised version of how a young man in their 20s would like to look. Because like he says to Jack, he says, I'm everything that you, know, you wish you were. I'm smart, I'm capable. He is just everything that this this guy in in a shitty job that hasn't got anything going for him would like to be. But again, it's that sort of that message that Tyler's you know quite often he does it in the car, but he does it sort of like subtly as well. It's like let go, don't fucking worry about looking like me, don't worry yeah. about this, don't worry about that. You know, you know, he says about the sort of rules of fat. Uh, fight club here, so the reason to cut your, your fingernails is the reason you cut your hair short yeah, yeah, yeah. and stuff like that it's the practicalities I think that's the th- thing that's sort of being implied there is you know the sort of aesthetic sort of look but I think that that's he, the irony the final yeah. irony and then the, you fact get the irony of like Jack is actually he is that f- for everyone else that's interacting with Jack with Tyler they're seeing Edward Norton yeah because the, you know the character the Jacksies doesn't actually exist in the real world, but he is having exactly the same effect on people. He's being charming, he's being charismatic, he's getting people to do pretty much fucking insane things. But he doesn't look like Brad Pitt; he just looks like Edward Norton. They sort of allude to it a little bit, don't when he has the flashbacks, when he has the realization, when he does the the the, the, the not talkable Fight Club speech. He's actually wearing Brad Pitt's black shirt. But a lot of the time, when you see a lot of the other flashbacks, he's wearing the same clothes that he's. Yeah, wearing when we're first seeing him, so he's not wearing the sort of. The other thing we're going to talk about with the leather jacket, that fucking vest at the end. I don't know why. Oh, the, the porn vest. The porn vest is yeah, fucking right. amazing. You can, things you can get, which I found, <laughs> it, you can get the porn vest, which is just a vest which has got loads of images from pornographic magazines and porn films. He gives a hustler t-shirt. Now that's one of the things that amused Fincher at the time. He said, we were getting all of this flack from from Fox about this, that, whatever, about the violence. None of them ever picked up on the fact that Brad Pitt is wearing this garment with loads of pornography all over it. None of them noticed. No. Then you've got the, when he does the chemical burn with the lie on his hand and he's wearing that sort of leaf t-shirt. Have a look how much that's going for on eBay at the moment. <laughs> Holy cow. If you want a, an exact replica of that shirt, you're going to be p- paying hundreds of pounds or dollars. Those uh, red tinted shades that 
No, Brad Pitt I, wins. I have looked at those, yeah. Have you seen how expensive yeah. they are? God, <laughs> you know, for a guy that sort of is railing against, you know, materialism and stuff like that, he, he definitely spends a lot on his wardrobe. They, uh, I think the producers originally, you know, we're talking about Brad Pitt here, they wanted Russell Crowe as, as no. Tyler Durden. Wow. Oh, wow. Well, they, they wanted uh, Matt Damon as, as Jack. And Sean Penn. What Matt Damon and Sean Penn? See, that just Jack. wouldn't have worked, would it? Because the age difference would have been too. Yeah, but again, you know, maybe at the time before they knew where they were going. Obviously, they looked at Finch's last film, which was The Game, which obviously had Sean Penn in it. The Game, which as we'll come to, is the last of the Fincher films I've I've watched because I never saw it, and I never saw it until last well, night. While we're playing the little game of woulda, shoulda, coulda, The Departed as Brad Pitt as the producer because yes. he bought the rights to it because originally The it was Departed be a, was Ed, Ed Norton, Ed and, Norton Brad and Brad Pitt, Pitt. instead of Matt, ironically instead of Ed uh, Matt. Demon. Yeah, that would have worked, yeah. Anything else, Jacob, you want to... Oh, yeah, Meatloaf. On paper, should never work, but he's the perfect guy for the part, even though he'd lost a shitload of weight when he turned up to make Fight Club. And Rob Boutine, who is just one of the most you know amazing special effects we gurus. We we've, yeah, we've spoken about Rob Boutine, you know, the work he did on Robocop. Yeah, he did incredible work on John Carpenter's The Thing. Look at all the prosthetics, the people with all of these injuries, the, you know, the, the, the vicious Jared Leto angel face beating and, and you know the makeup there. But then it's that fat suit he created for Meatloaf. It, it was basically, it, it was like a, a, a latex bodysuit that you had to fill with like... No, birdseed. Birdseed, yeah, to hang like, like, you know, like pockets of fat. And you know, there were two versions made. And the one thing that the studio railed against was they didn't like the nipples showing through with the shirt. So they had a version with nipples and a, and a version without. But then they also had a version which they never actually used, which was going to be for when we see Bob fighting in Fight Club, he's actually fighting shirtless as per the rules. Yeah, It didn't exactly work out. And I think, you know, they, they cut back on one of those rules for him actually allowed him to fight with right. a shirt now, on. I've always taken that, that he had the top because he's wearing the gold gym top, isn't he? Yeah. I've always taken that, that that was Jack allowing him to wear this. Because if you notice, he gives he gives Bob a break as well with the uh, Project Mayhem. He tells right. the rest of them to fuck off, but he goes and chases after him. Yeah. And it's like as if he has a sort of special place in his heart for Bob. Yeah. If you look, he's trying to sort of engineer the rest of them to be space monkeys. Or Tyler is. Or Tyler is. Yeah. Okay, let's look at it either way. But I've always taken it that he allowed him to wear the top. And if you notice, when he when he when he's wearing it, he's wearing the Gold's gym top as well. And he's supposed to be a former gym owner, isn't he? That went bankrupt yeah. and stuff like that. And it's almost like he's giving him a little bit former of masculinity. Yeah, he was a bodybuilder. Yeah. yeah. So I thought I've always taken it that he was allowed him to sort of you know come back and you know have a little bit of masculinity back because he had lost his nuts, hadn't yeah. he? You know, and he was sort of giving him a little bit back. That's always been my interpretation that if Bob had taken his top off, as much as a sort of close knit group as uh, Fight Club was at the time, there might have been some sniggering. There might have been. Yeah, he's looking after Bob, isn't he? Because yeah. at heart, Jack, not Tyler, you know, but where there is that clear separation of characters, Jack is a, a decent person. Yeah. He's also the one, the only one that dies. Part of the, you know, Project Mayhem. Right, talking yeah. about Project Mayhem. <laughs> In my notes. Just because it amuses me, and going back to what you were saying, Jacob, about Fight Club being a comedy, is when Jack is talking about the escalation of Project Mayhem, and we're seeing you know Tyler come up with these new schemes. He's cutting out the newspaper clippings. Some of those newspaper clippings are: police sees excrement catapult, <laughs> fountain befouled, and missing monkeys found shaved. <laughs> Space monkeys. Space monkeys. Space monkeys. That was his first it, it's, it's brilliant. But I would have loved to have seen the deleted scene that shows the excrement catapult. <laughs> <laughs> but it, oh, like, like we were saying earlier, though, it is like it's almost schoolboy stuff what they're doing to begin yeah. with. But it's almost like a form of training for them because 
you know, you get away with doing that and then you realise you can blow up uh, a computer store or you can go into block. I had to, literally seen the old blockbuster. Every time I see a blockbuster now, I get yeah. a little bit reminiscent. It's, yeah, you too. And then when they're going in with the sort of magnets and they actually use the, the store's electricity supply to, to use wipe, the magnets. Yeah, to wipe the VHS tapes with the magnets. And again, you know, youngsters now will be like, what's a blockbusters? What are they doing? There's so many, just, it's such a rich film. It is just like a rich soup of detail and, and, you know, layer upon layer of detail. You could just watch it countless times, just pick up new things. Going back to the book and something which isn't sort of laid out in the film is the rules of Project Mayhem. Much like Fight Club, rule one is you don't ask questions about Project Mayhem, which I obviously say in the film. No surprise then, rule two is you don't ask questions about Project Mayhem. Rule three is no excuses, rule four is no lies, and rule five showing ultimately that it's about indoctrination and you know this sort of charismatic ultimately terrorist leader rule five is you have to trust tyler there's a line in the book that sort of sets out far more clearly what tyler's trying to do and to quote the book directly it's project mayhem that's going to save the world a cultural ice age prematurely induced dark age project mayhem will force humanity to go dormant or into remission long enough for the earth to recover now if you look at now that where we are in the present with global warming with the pressure on us to do something about climate change and ultimately you could look back and say well project mayhem was about not us and about our well-being but about that of the planet about shutting down humanity and everything humanity's doing well the great speech he gives you know but that's like there'll be vines going to see us tower, yeah. you know stuff yeah like that, you know it's layer upon layer of depth this was the, the goal of project mayhem the complete and right away destruction of civilization it's just some deep shit <laughs> Really deep shit. And it is, you know, it is sometimes, like you say, when you get sort of this sort of full outrage about, you know, someone posting on Facebook or Twitter or something and everyone's outraged and people, people are getting, you know, demanding that people get fired from their job because they said something controversial and stuff like that. And you do think sometimes, you know, I just wish we could all go back to just fucking living yeah, in tribes back, back to somewhere. These, <laughs> yeah, back to the pre-internet, pre-social media days when... Don't get me sad on social media because I, I, I should have done a black middle yeah. one with you, to be honest, but I... I my, my thoughts on social media, I love social media and I hate it with equal sort of balance. If it wasn't for social media, we wouldn't be doing this. What yeah, we're doing that's now. what I'm saying. Like, yeah. We love all of our followers. We love everyone we interact with. Even the ones that we sometimes have a bit of a prickly relationship with. We love you guys <laughs> as well. But you could see how someone could sort of say something and it could snowball into this massive argument. And I have got into the little Twitter spats, but I always tend to walk away from them. Yeah. You know? Things get out of hand and it would be nice sometimes just to reset things. And, uh, you know, when I see how bad social media can be, and, and, you know, before I was on social media, I used to say, it's mostly bad stuff. It's mostly negativity. That is clearly not the case because it brings us all together in ways that does benefit us. You, you've got to look back. How would a film like Fight Club, if it was released now, Ground Zero, today, in this 2019... Would, that would have been Instagram. It wouldn't have been the Ikea catalogue. It would have been Instagram, yeah. wouldn't it? It yeah. would have been people portraying their, their perfect lives yeah. and, you know, and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think this film could come out, though, today. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be the same, because, no. like I was saying before, I think all these things converging at the right time was able to make this masterpiece. But, you know, Fincher would have been, you know, how many you know years removed, you know, to today's times. And then, like you were saying, the politically correct, like, culture that we live in, that would have totally morphed, you know, if a Chuck was writing a book today, I don't know that he would write the same type of book. And I don't know that it would have been championed. Like, oh, you know, we didn't, we, didn't, mm. we didn't mention this, but Raymond... 
Bon Giovanni, who was an executive, that was his like dying. He read the book, and that was his dying wish: is that he wanted. Yeah, he wanted Fight Club to be adapted. He's much as a driving force of why this film got made as anyone. Today's times, I don't like the direction that we're going, but it's just it's just so everybody's so overly sensitive and everything's just kind of so serious. And I'm not saying that there isn't good causes to champion on there, but there's also a teeter-totter effect where something can almost go too much to the, the wrong way. Hmm. It's, it's, too, it's too easy to virtue signal though, isn't it? It is. It yeah. is. Yeah, people are virtue signaling about everything. People are misinterpreting things. Like imagine how badly, you know, Fight Club was misinterpreted upon its initial release 20 years ago. Imagine all the different takes on Fight Club and, and people voicing their disgust at, at how misogynistic it is when basically they're not seeing things the way that someone like me sees it. As It's, it's not about, it, it's about. It's about the story it's about that person and that's what that's what I was saying to you before when we were I can't remember whatever film we were talking about on one of the other podcasts and I was saying it, it doesn't have to be a political statement it doesn't have no. to be it's a, it's a story about his life it's a story about yeah. his world and about, about a man dealing with an extreme mental you know, you know it is an extreme mental illness what he's say, dealing with was- I mean ultimately this is it's like anything it's, it's, it's art you know and so what people take from it yeah you know it, it, that's that's theirs yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to fit into, you know, like you were saying before, a genre or whatever. But, you know, as long as it, it's it's taken in a in a positive sense as far as an enjoyment or entertainment or a good laugh and not something like, you know, like some, you know, people in the past, you know, have taken, you know, like a, you know, whatever, it's a Beatles song or a book and and then they go and shoot somebody because they think that, you know, th- those are obviously crazy people. But, you know, the majority of people are, aren't like that. They're just, you know, fans and they just want to be entertained and then that's what it is it's it's, it's art it yeah is, it is. we we had we had uh, you know a couple of things over here didn't we with certain films were getting banned or you know self-styled rambo killings and stuff like that and it's easy to put a tagline on saying it is it, it, it's easy to, to to point blame and you know we, we we live in an outrage or culture and a blame culture that blame culture has been there for for decades that's that's not something new but I think a lot of the, there is a blame culture element to this, but it's, it's prevalent in the story, isn't it? Because it is someone mm. who's lost guidance, if you like. You know, if you look at that sort of, that, I say, go back to the father thing. If you look at that sort of conversation he's had when Tyler's in the bath and he sat there on the side of the bath, it is that thing of, I asked my father what to do, he told me this. I asked my father what to do, he told me that. I asked my father what to and then Our it, fathers are our models for and God. Then, I was going to say, yeah. and then you come back to that. So it's not just the, the, the sort of, I suppose the father element's there, but it's also that thing of, how did I get to where I am? no one's ever really given me a guidebook on life. You know, I've pretty much done what conformity, you know, what normality says I should do. I've got the apartment, I've got the, you know, the fancy, you know, items, I've got the job, I've got this, I've got that. But then he's just unfulfilled, isn't he? He's, you know, he's, he's like, there's more to life than this. Yeah. And I'm not saying... Well, I think it, it clearly shows, doesn't it, that things just get out of hand and for all of his wisdom, all of his attractive sort of Zen Buddhist stuff that he's spouting, when left unchecked, it all spirals into mayhem and chaos. And at the very end, what's actually happening is is not what Jack wants. All Jack wants at the end is is Marla, is the thing that's been in front of him all along. They don't ever mention any exes or anything like that. They don't ever mention that he had his heart broke or you no. know, that he was you know perhaps painfully shy or anything like that. There's, there's no need to. It's just that... You're meeting this person at that point of his yeah, life. It like need, he says at the very end. It he met me at a very strange time in my life. Doesn't need it doesn't need a backstory as such, does it? Yeah, I think it it, it, go, it goes back to the human story is that we all wanna belong and we all wanna be, you know, loved and, and you know, have companionship. 
you know, whether it's through friendship or through husband, wife, whatever, or even like children, you know, like, you know, have those experiences. And so, you know, Tyler, eventually, you know, him and, and Marla were kind of lost, and they were able to find each other. And so now they have somebody that's similar to them to experience things with, and kind of, you know, they understand each other, and they belong, you know, whether earlier, whether it was to a fight club to this group of, of men, or, you know, this the project mayhem or whatever i mean or even just tyler itself having having that friend you know that you created something with and just that excitement you know even if you don't agree with everything i mean i've had disagreements with my friends and and you know whatnot and that's that's life but you know it's that ultimate like just being belong and, and needed i think that's the you know the the point yeah and like you say there's almost that sort of jealousy creeps in towards the end of their friendship as well and it, and it's 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 quite sort of telling now watching it this time i was saying i n- never noticed before is the more jealous he gets of Tyler, the more Tyler pushes him away. It's almost as if he's trying to teach himself a lesson. You know, it's a bit of a cliche. You know, if you love someone, set them free type thing. Mm. It's almost the more he tries to cling on to Tyler, the more the more Tyler, you know, sort of resents him even. So that's, that's pushing him away. He's like, mm. you don't need to be needy. I was here as your, I was your, here as your friend anyway. But then when he starts getting that sort of element of jealousy, because, you know, like everyone's myths of, you know, how Tyler was raised in a mental institute during such an hour at night and stuff like that. You know, we don't know. Perhaps Jack did have mental health issues all his life. Perhaps he was practically raised in a mental institute. This could could be something he's dealt with all his life. And now it's just got worse. He is sleeping an hour a night, really. Yeah, well, he is. Yeah, of course You know, and stuff like that. So it could be that sort of backstory to it, you know, in that respect. But the other side of it is, it's almost as if, and I think this happens quite a lot. I mean, Sky gets this with the site when everyone gives me kudos and puts him down. You sort of get, <laughs> you sort of get, you sort of get a little. No, I think we, I've had like friends who've been in bands and stuff like that, and then you know they're, they're equally talented, and then the one seems to become the front man. Do you know what I mean? The stuff like that. It's always that sort of. Is that kind of a thinking as to why you actually created me as your sort of more successful, better looking alter ego? Because I don't actually exist, Neil. We could, t- we could, t- we could talk about the conversation we had over text the other day with Sky pointed this out and I said yeah but I'd be Brad Pitt so yeah. <laughs> but no really I don't actually exist I'm just a figment that Neil's imagination we were going to do this all the way through the podcast I was going to refer to myself as Sky and he was going to refer to himself as Neil it would have become way too confusing, got too confusing. <laughs> but, but Jacob before we wrap things up there's just one question I've got for you and that is what kind of dining set defines you as a person <laughs> <laughs> probably just uh, one spork one spork. Uh, I like that. That's uh, yeah, efficient. You know, attractive. I could use it as a spoon. I could use it as a fork, and I could ah. use the edge to cut my, you know, cut my food. So it, it works as it three ways. When I got divorced, and I never used to take any sort of play. I mean, my house is quite eclectic. I would say is probably a fair description of the mess I live in. But when I got first got divorced, I found myself at IKEA having to buy a dining set, and it was something I'd never given any thought yeah. to. Because my ex-wife would just yeah. buy the dining sets. And I started pondering over which dining set to buy, and that popped into my head. And I said, fuck this, and walked out of there. We, if I told you the day I've had, me and my wife have just had a new bathroom fitted, and we've just been going around looking for little accoutrements to uh, <laughs> make our little bathroom complete. And she was looking at soap holders, <laughs> and she pointed one out. And my, my response was, yeah, that looked nice with a nice pink uh, bar of Fight Club soap on it. And she looked at me, she says, what? I said, no, nah, never mind. <laughs> Before we wrap things up, there's little things that I'd noticed before and forgot and, and, and have recently been reminded of. Little hidden details in, in Fight Club. The first is when Tyler and Jack are driving, or, or, or Tyler's driving, and then he's trying to tell Jack to let go and they crash. 
and the car flips onto his roof. And then you see Tyler get out of the car and pull Jack out. He actually pulls Jack out of the driver's side. Little detail, the fact that Jack, oh, oh, yeah. Jack was, was always driving. Obviously, yeah. yeah, And that's something that the continuity people picked up on and fed back to Fincher. And, they, and he said to him again, you don't get this film. Watching this film you. And then the one that me and Neil, have, before we recorded, we've openly acknowledged is at the beginning of the film, where you know everything starts at the end. He pulls the gun out of his mouth and he said, can you think of anything to say? And then at the end of the film, when we, go, when we go back into that same scene, he pulls the gun out of his mouth and he says, I still can't think of anything to say. And Tyler's response is, ah, flashback humour. friend of mine's got a theory that when that ends and then you get the, the obvious cock shot, yeah. that this has happened. This is all just a story he's telling. It's all like a, uh, you know, a story he's made himself. And that could make sense. But, when you think of the four fall stuff, I don't subscribe to it, but I can sort of see where he was going with that. But my take is that he's, he's put that bullet through his mouth, he's got rid of the, the Tyler aspect, but then the cock shot is... But he's still there lurking. Yeah. Or it's a dissolution of the barrier between Jack and Tyler. And the good things about Tyler, Jack has finally absorbed. And he's become a complete person by embracing both sides of his personality. Because it's a fig- figment of his you know, imagination or a part of himself. I mean, you can say Jack is, or um, I mean, Tyler's never really gone. He could still be lurking there just in the, the because it's part of his mind. It's not a physical being. Well, he, he thinks he thinks that he, you know he he sort of clicks the guns in my hand. Yeah. And then he, if you like, he out he out thinks Tyler in that respect, and then he thinks Tyler dead, doesn't he? Because the bullet goes out through his cheek, but it goes through the back of Tyler's head. Like Jacob said, Tyler's always going to be there, and I thought that was where the book kind of lays itself down. Using the film like Deliverance, I love the film that Deliverance should have ended like ten minutes before it does, mm. and you get that sort of aftermath. The book kind of does that, doesn't it, with the mental institution it does, and yeah. stuff like that, and you get that sort of. But you get that comforting coda. Yeah, and this film doesn't. You, need do, you it. don't need it. You don't need it, and the way it ends is is absolutely perfect. So, talking of endings, <laughs> let's bring things to a close on Fight Club now because we've been talking about the one film for well over an hour and a half. Let's just look at Fincher's wider filmography, and let's just see where we fit Fight Club in amongst our favourite five Fincher films. Jacob, we'll start with you. Uh, what 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 are your top five? This is so tough to do. Because I, I'm a, a huge fan of uh, Fincher, and this is why we approach you for the episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, it's almost like I could say I have a, a three way tie for first, and then I have a four and a five. My number five would be Zodiac, <gasps> and then my number four would be The Game, and then in a three way tie, I got Seven, Fight Club, and The Social Network. Let's let's talk about that. So your your number five was Zodiac. Yes. Right. Before we analyse each person's top five, Neil, let's hear, hear yours. My number five would be Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and I'll explain why later. Yeah. Four, I'm going to have to go Zodiac, and it's not because it shouldn't be any higher. It's just literally, I've only ever seen that film once, and it's one of those films I'm always going to return, so I yeah. never have. So I'm torn with this now. <sighs> just go with what you've done already. Three, I'd have to go Gone Girl. It's a film I've seen oh, four or five times, yeah. and every time it gets better for me. To, can we do tight number ones? No, yeah, I, I'll, yeah. I'll go seven and then I'll go fight club. But it's, I would say the seven is a very, very... It's a split decision, Jacob. It's a very close. Yeah, and I reckon if you were to sit down and watch seven now... Oh, I'd change my mind, yeah. You, you could yeah. well. Yeah. And I think if you did that with Zodiac, you might as well. Yeah. At number five, just purely because I've always defended the film and because I've got quite an intimate relationship, I put Alien 3. It's not as good a film as Gone Girl. It, it, it isn't. It's probably, you know, I, I think there'd probably be a good argument that films like The Game are, are better than it. But for a film to have such a messed up production as that and to come out as good as it did, 
especially in the longer version that was you know later put together i think around about 2003 it doesn't get the credit it it deserves i think you know i've certainly known among or, or noticed amongst film fans that there is a, a sort of growing devotion to the film but i've got alien 3 as number five Number four is a film that I didn't really enjoy that much on first viewing when I saw it probably not long after it was first released. Uh, it's a film I've watched in preparation for this and now I appreciate a hell of a lot more and that's The Social Network. I'm going to have to give a cop out. I'm going to have to go for a three-way tie between Seven, Zodiac and Fight Club. I cannot split hairs on these three films. I think Fight Club is an absolute masterpiece. It is just one of my favourite films of all time. I think it's one of the greatest films ever made. Put a gun to my head, yeah, I may well at this moment pick Fight Club, but I know that you sit me down and watch Zodiac, and for the longest time I was actually saying, when I first saw that film in 2007, saying, I think this might be his best film. Yeah, I, could, I wouldn't argue with it at all of that. For completely different reasons as to, what, as to why I love Fight Club, but it is just Zodiac doesn't play with the truth in a way a lot of retellings of, of things like this, you know, the, the hunt for the Zodiac killer in, in, in the, the, the late 60s, early 70s does. It's got three incredible lead performances from Mark Ruffalo, Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. Technically, the film is just absolute perfection. And yeah, I, I just love it. It's a remarkable film. So at the moment, I'm going to stick with the tie. And then what can I say about Seven that hasn't already been said about it and that I'm sure we're going to say next year when we do um, a 25th anniversary episode on it. But yeah, that's my three-way. It's, it's between Seven, Fight Club and Zodiac. So Jacob, yeah, back to you. Um, take us through then briefly your, your favourite Fincher films and why you love them. But just to give you a little bit of support, I do really like Alien 3. I think it's a very misunderstood film. And I know David Fincher doesn't really, because of all the problems that that, that hap- happened with the studio, but it, it nearly it nearly cracked. I was almost going to put it at five, but Zodiac uh, that took that place. Um, but Zodiac, you basically said a bunch right there. Um, it just I've seen all of Fincher's movies with the exception of two of them in the theater. And, uh, you know, when I saw Zodiac, I was I was just blown away by it. It just it doesn't do the like I think the conventional like kind of chasing a, a you know, a serial killer story. You know, you kind of you're given little elements to it and you're kind of left to decide on your own in a way. Like, oh, was it this guy or was it that guy? You know, because there's so many, like, little, I guess, uh, clues to lead you to believe maybe it's this person or maybe it's this person and, you know, and their motivations, you know. So I, I like that part of it. And I think the acting is just is just top notch. And, uh, you know, again, I, I just love Fincher's style, the darkness to it, the grittiness to it. And I, I just it's a, it's a great film. You know, I, I watched it recently, not too long ago, maybe like a month ago. And, and, and you know, I. I enjoyed it just as much as the first time I watched it. And as people that know me will know, I'm a sucker for realism. And I think what Zodiac does best is it takes all of those great elements from films like All the President's Men about mm. you know, investigative journalism and right. stuff like The French Connection about you know just the mundanity and the things that hamper law enforcement from piecing together. You know, certainly back in the days before things like the internet. And I think that's one of the things that Zodiac does best. It just shows the sort of procedural aspect yeah. to it, it all yeah. of these different law enforcement agencies had this information but they had little bits of different information and because there was no ability to get it all together ultimately spoilers this man was able to evade the law and any other film would have given would have changed things slightly and maybe given a less ambiguous ending but it doesn't and it doesn't shy away from the truth and i think that is what makes zodiac just such an amazing film yeah i agree um and then uh the game was my number four 
A lot of people, I think, crap on on this film by saying it's you know it's not realistic and and whatnot. But you know, again, I suspend suspend my disbelief, and I'm just taking on a journey. You know, it has a very similar theme in the sense of that whole father thing, and this this man who is basically having to uh, he becomes successful, but you know he's so locked into that world, and he's so like kind of isolated from anybody and and anything that you know he's given this this gift you know from his brother and it literally changes his life you know there's a part of me that wished that these things were actually real but i mean obviously to coordinate something to that magnitude would would be a a, a huge undertaking and cost millions and millions of dollars but you know i i think it, it's it's a it's a great message to you know these people that have gone through you know traumatic things is is that you know when you're closed off from basically humanity and you're just focused on you know just one thing and you're just in this cold place you know that there's other things out there for you and that you know whether it's love or or um, friendship or whatever you know I think that you have to make that leap and and I think that's what the the film is trying to say. I, I don't think I'm in any way in a position to comment that much on the game because I, I saw it for the first time two nights ago. And I think at the moment, whilst I appreciate the fun for what it is, I, I think falling in between Seven and Fight Club is in nowhere near the same league as those two films. It's almost like it's sort of um, more sort of Hollywood version of a film. The other films seem to be very sort of... Even, even though the central idea, I yeah. think, is very far-fetched and very sort of... And that's, I think that's my biggest problem with the film is that I don't see that someone would be able to pull off something as ridiculous as this without anyone getting seriously hurt. So the, so here, so we talked about Fight Club. You know, I, I love the film. I think it's a perfect film. You know, there's, there's not too much more I could say about that. The Social Network is an interesting... So I did not see this in the theater, and I do not have Facebook. And I remember when they said they were going to make a Facebook movie... I had no interest in seeing it. And then when I saw that David Fincher was attached to it, I was like, well, I have to see it because it's Fincher. But I don't know. This might be one of those films that I don't like. And when I watched it, I didn't, you know, I watched it on um, video. I literally, after I finished it, I rewatched it again, which is rare that, that I would do that. And I've seen this movie so many damn times. I love it. I love this movie. I think it's it's funny. It's dark. It's because it's based on adapted from a, a book and based on on uh, a real story. I think Jesse Eisenberg is his best performance. You know, he's just, just such an asshole in the movie. I don't know. I just there's there's so much about it that I just keep on I keep on watching this movie over and over again. Like I I probably watch it. I'm not even kidding you. Like maybe four times a year, maybe more. Wow. I never get sick of it. It's just, it's still entertaining to me and it's still funny to me. I could even put it on, you know, at work and not even like watch it, but like listen to it. And it's, you know, I still get enjoyment out of it. Again, I'm not in into Facebook at all, but I, the story is just, to me, is just so intriguing. And some of the absurdity is just, I don't know. I, I love it. It's that sort of contradiction in terms, like you say, he comes across as if he wants to do something good, and then at the same time, he's fucking everyone over at the same time. Yeah. And it's, there's kind of parts of that film, you'd almost sort of like rooted in for him in another part, where you're feeling guilty for sort of enjoying something mm-hmm. funny that he said, you know, or the way he reacts to people. I don't know if Jesse Eisenberg's a nice guy or not. In that film, he does, he does arsehole to perfection, doesn't he? He does, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I first saw that film maybe a couple of months after it came out in the cinemas. I didn't see it in the cinema, I saw it first on DVD. At that time in my life, I was not on social media in any shape or form, as, as Neil knows, and I had quite a negative opinion of it. So I think ultimately my first take was, why are people getting so excited about a film about the guy who created Facebook? This is nowhere near in the same league as stuff like Zodiac, yeah. Fight Club, 
seven, but I've rewatched it recently. Now I've been down that whole sort of social network rabbit hole. I see the film in a completely different way. It's, it's the most I've enjoyed the film. I'm quite surprised it actually made my list. Um, before I watched, I thought, you know, I'm just, I'm probably going to come away from it feeling exactly the same as I did when I first saw it. And I didn't, and like I've said before, I'm not the type of person that's going to watch a film and set in stone their opinion on it on first viewing. And that's why I'm not going to put any solid opinion of the game across. I've only seen it the once. I definitely think the game is a film that will benefit from repeat viewings. And it was exactly the same with Gone Girl. And you know, being objective, I think that Gone Girl probably deserves to be on my list, certainly in place of Alien 3. So you, know, you could just as easily switch out Gone Girl for Alien 3, because I think Gone Girl is a superior film to Alien 3. It's just not a film that... I've got as intimate a relationship with, even though I think it is a better film. We've had conversations like this about Tarantino in the past, where I've said to you, if you just put the brakes on, you yeah. know, just took up that little sort of egotistic scene, this mm. one would be perfect. Certainly with his with his, his more recent stuff. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. If you look at Gone Girl, Finch has almost got like a sort of distinctive sort of style. And I think that's why it was good with the Girl the Dragon Tattoo as well, but I'll come back to that. A lot of the time you could tell you're watching a Fincher film and Gone Girl, it doesn't feel like a Fincher film, but it doesn't lose anything from that either. It's a very sort of mature sort of way of doing it. A lot of the sort of tricks and the traits that Fincher uses, he doesn't use in Gone Girl. It's more of a... It's, it's, it's about the characters. It's, it's about the characters, yeah. different tone and stuff like that. I remember the first time watching it and thinking, yeah, it's pretty good. On repeat viewings, I pick up more and more from I it. Do you know, as well. Affleck comes in for a certain amount of stick. I think good I think actor. I think, I think he's think... great in in Gone Girl. Yeah, and he he just again fits the role so so well because you're yeah. sort of watching it. It's easy to say she's the psychopath, but then when it flips on his head and you can see what he was doing yeah. to her, and it goes back and forth. I love that sort of balance you get between they're both just as fucked up as each other. Yeah. And again, we sort of get the sort of media playing its part, which I know has been done a million times before, but it's almost handled in such a way that. I haven't seen before. It was the sort of the introduction to you know if you have your photo taken at the wrong time and it's put on yeah. social media. I think that was the first time I'd ever picked up on that. The sort of chat show mentality. Then you get the sort of celebrity lawyers, and it could have gone down a very different route. It could have mm. become very sort of hackneyed and cheesy. And yet, all the way through, that film grips me. You know, it's, it, yeah. And you know, even the supporting performances. Carrie Coon as his sister. Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry is really good. In it. And who's the girl Neil, that plays Neil the Neil Patrick um, Harris again? You know, yeah, Neil Patrick <laughs> Harris. Yeah. And who's the girl that plays the um, the one that plays the cop who's investigating it? Oh, she's yeah. she's brilliant as yeah. well. Kim Dickens. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's what Kim Dickens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gone Girl's a great film, and, and being objective, yeah. I'd kick Alien 3 off, off there. That's a purely subjective choice. Like my, I'd put it as my number five, I think, if I'm honest. Gone Girl. And then The Social Network at number four. And then a three-way tie, obviously, with the films we've discussed. Yeah. And again, I was going to say with The dra- Girl the Dragon Tattoo, I love the original. And I, one of my sort of pet peeves with, like, you know, foreign films being remade, you always lose something. Or yeah. Very much. And I, I will fully accept that this isn't as good as the original. And it wasn't going to be as good as the original. Why I've put that on my list is I cynically stayed away from that film for so many years thinking I've already seen the original I don't need to see this mm. I know there's a sort of slight tinkering towards the end with the storyline and such like that because we're doing a Finch episode I'm going to give all the credit to Finch here he brings out the performance like Daniel Craig I, for me that is his best performance doing Craig a disservice there but because mm. we're doing a Finch episode it's just the way the Fincher put his spin on it and the way the Fincher sort of embraced that film. That's why it's gone on my list. Not because it deserves to be on that list above other films, perhaps. Just more the surprise factor for me. Where'd I go? Seven was number two. Well, we've done Social Network to death. Seven, yeah. Fantastic. I mean, it's... it's we'll save that for next year. We'll save that for next year, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I would only put... I would say Fight Club for me goes at number one. I could completely agree with you guys going for a tie. 
but I would say Fight Club speaks to me more than Seven does. Seven is a fantastic story. At this moment, gun to the head, Fight Club's my number one. I was going to say, you want to kill people. I know for a fact, if I were to sit down now and watch Seven and Zodiac, which I haven't watched for a couple of yeah. years, I know there's a fair chance that I might alter my decision. So that's why I'm just playing it safe and going the three-way tie. It's because it's just so... For me, there's so little separating those three films. They are, all three of them, absolutely staggering pieces of work. They're 10 out of 10 films. Yeah. So moving on to... um, We did put the social media, but before we get to um, our listeners' responses, we've got uh, the rest of the Film 89 crew and our close friends. Steve Amos, at Welsh Bluesman. Here's his... um, very similar to mine. Uh, number five, Alien 3. Number four, The Social Network. Number three, Fight Club. Number two, Seven. Number one, Zodiac. But Steve did say uh, in, a, in a private discussion, he said that top three is interchangeable and he, he had a hell of a lot of trouble putting it in order. And he's given an honourable mention to Mindhunters, which obviously you've... Uh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, you, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're season two though, man. Jesus. But I, I kind of like the way they're taking their time with it, Jacob. I know, I know what you're saying, but uh, the first season, I was just if they can sort of come anywhere near matching that, then it's worth taking the time over, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I definitely want them to get it right, but I also don't want them to take too, too long, you know? Yeah, that is, and I was going to say, that is something I think that Fincher perhaps does fall foul of a little bit, perhaps a little bit too much over-preparation, is that? Next up then from the Film 89 crew, Hayden Spurrell. He's picked number five, Gone Girl, number four, Zodiac, number three, The Social Network, number two, Seven, and number one, Fight Club. And then another member of the Film 89 team, Leighton Winstone, He's picked number five, A Perfect Circle, Judith. I love that one. <laughs> it's a documentary based on a music video that he did back around about 2000, which I've never heard of, but obviously Leighton massively into his uh, music documentaries. Number four, The Social Network. Number three, Zodiac. Number two, Fight Club. And number one, Seven. His honourable mentions, Mindhunters. Another friend of Film 89 and someone who's been on the podcast a few times now is the wonderful Bill Scurry, who's just celebrated a birthday. So happy birthday, Bill. Bill's number five is Alien 3. His number four is Seven. Number three, Social Network. Number two, The Game. Number one, Zodiac. Fight Club doesn't appear on Bill's list. He shall answer to that shortly. (laughs) Going up to Twitter, uh, Alexandra Daniels, who you can follow on Twitter, at Film Vinyl. She's picked number five, Alien 3. Number four, The Social Network. Number three, Fight Club. Number two, Zodiac. Number one, Gone Girl. So it's not as unpopular as you thought. No, I was going to say, I just, I just noticed quite often when I bring Gone Girl to the conversation, people poo-poo it straight away. We don't know his name his, uh, his name because uh, his Twitter handle and his name are the same things, but I am Jack's Musings. Very appropriate. It's him well. <laughs> He's interacted with us a few times now, uh, sent in his top fives, but this one is number five, Gone Girl, number four, The Social Network, number three, Zodiac, number two, Seven, and number one, Fight Club. But he's given them with the caveat that picking his favourite film from his favourite director is like picking his favourite child. Andrew Williams via Facebook has, he's not put him in any order, Seven, Gone Girl, The Social Network, Fight Club, and Zodiac. So we all agree with him. Yeah, they're all great <laughs> so films. Do you guys real? Do you guys see a theme here that so far two films haven't been discussed? Panic Room and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. They're not on anybody's list. Hang on, let me just finish. Just make sure they're not. Uh, <laughs> another friend of uh, Film Eighty Nine, Stephen Simpson. You can follow him on Twitter at Steve Seven. Number five, The Game. Number four, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Number three. Panic room. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you just made a very powerful enemy there, Jacob. <laughs> Co- controversial choice for number two, Alien Three, and number one, Seven. And he says, "Give a shout out for his Madonna videos." 
Finally, we'll, we'll go for Simon Lewis on Twitter, at SimLu86. Number five, the girl with a dragon tattoo, and he's put in brackets, controversial. Number four, the social <laughs> network. Number three, seven. Number two, Fight Club. And number one, Zodiac. So yeah, get more Zodiac's, love to Zodiac. Zodiac's really going well, yeah. So yeah, thank you everyone who that, that sent us in your, your top five. Apologies for any I didn't read out, but we are we are pushing uh, over the two hour mark now. We just want to bring things uh, to a close. I want to hear Jacob talk about Panic Room and uh, Benjamin Button. No? I just I, w- I want to say I own Panic. I own all these these films, so I like Panic Room and I like Curious Case of J- Benjamin Button. But in the if you're looking at his filmography, I think they are on the weaker end of, uh, of his uh, films. The opening to Panic Room is just textbook opening credits. It's got some great tactical stuff in it. Great camera work, but other than that, if I, I think took, it's... If we took Jared Leto's Brad Pitt-esque performance in yeah. the Panic Room... The, the poor man's Brad Pitt, yeah. Would would that film be better received? It'd be better, yeah. I, I, I don't mind Panic Room, but it's not going to make my list, and I think a lot of that is because I can remember going to the cinema to watch it and being really, you know, the total opposite of Fight Club then, because I was like fully yeah. on board with Fincher. And then being really frustrated by Jared Leto. I think I spoiled my initial view of it, definitely. Yeah. Much like Jared Leto was my biggest problem with Blade Runner 2049. Mm. <laughs> Don't want to shit on Jared Leto because you know, there's a few things I'd like him in. But... So uh, is there anything else you'd like to say about... Uh, am I right in saying, Jacob, that Finch is your favourite director? Yeah, it's, that's safe to say. I mean, yeah. I, I love all his films and I think the sign of a great film, and I know I, know I said this you know, ad nauseum, but... It's the rewatchability and getting this, whether it's the same amount of enjoyment or, you know, a different time of enjoyment. And I do get the, you know, I've revisited all these films from Gone Girl all the way to, to Alien 3. And I still get the same enjoyment from them and, and some more than others. But they're just, you know, he's just he's really great at his craft. I think he, he picks interesting things to do. He does have a style, but I think he he does you know do a lot of different things, and you know I I always look forward to his next project, whether it's the a TV series or um, movies. But you know I, I'm partial to the movie, so hopefully he he comes back. And thank you, Jacob, for coming on and talking about your favorite director. Um, even though I don't think anything I've said today can be in any way as uh, concise as as the, as the piece I've written about Fight Club for Film Eighty Nine. If you want to go back and read that, it's a far more um, compact and eloquent summation of my views on the film. But, you know, we were always going to do an episode about Fight Club and it was always going to be you that was going to be on because we know what a, what a massive uh, Fincher fan you are. So thank you so much for coming back on, Jacob. I appreciate that, guys. You know, um, it's 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 an honor to be on, on you know, this podcast. And I'm, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass here, but... I really do love this podcast. I think you guys do a great job, you know, with, with the, the topics that you discuss, you know, top uh, five segments or top three segments. And you just you guys feel like a, a you know, like some old friends that I'm just sitting around, you know, having a beer with and we're just talking film. And I can see your, your guys' passion for movies, you know, through the writings and through these podcasts. You guys are, are at the top. So, you know, I, I just I really appreciate being on. And Jacob, uh, we, you know, we appreciate the great pieces you've been writing for Film 89 and, you know, all the effort you put into them so you know that that, that goes both ways oh i appreciate it and you know jake if, you, if you're talking about blowing smoke up people's asses then let's do something that we said we'd never do let's break the fourth wall let's tell people all about that christmas diehard episode and what we did <laughs> we said we'd never do it but i think our listeners deserve to know the story so so yeah the the story that we vowed never to go public was when we were prepping for episode 22 which was our christmas special episode where we were going to be talking uh with jacob about diehard we'd, we'd been discussing things uh privately on twitter and arranging the episode but what neil and i had forgot to do and myself in particular had forgotten to do (laughs) 
is make clear references to what film we were going to be talking about on that episode because prior to that we had discussed doing an episode on the Rocky films. That never came to fruition because Neil did some absolutely fantastic articles for the site all about the Rocky saga. Some of the best stuff we've ever published. I'm, I'm really proud of it. I know Neil is. Yeah, yeah, and then we sort of had this very vague conversation about upcoming episodes. And when we finally um, hit well, we the... we always said when we get Jacob on, we got to talk about boxing. Yeah, we did. We did. <laughs> but we also were talking about coming on and doing a Die Hard episode, which we'd mentioned back in the summer. Piss poor communication from our part. We actually hit you up on Skype. We're ready to record. And then all of a sudden, we're like, okay, then Jacob, be ready to talk about Die Hard. <laughs> it's like, we were doing the Rocky films. And you were like, yes. Yeah, guys, um, I thought we were doing Rocky. And, and then we were going to mention Creed 2. And at the time, Creed 2 wasn't out over here. And Jacob no. had seen it. So we couldn't even just do it on the hoof no. because we hadn't seen Creed 2. <laughs> so instead of like turning a, turning away and saying, oh, you know, we'll, we'll come back and record again. God bless you, Jacob. You dug your heels in and you, you did that episode. And anyone who's listen to that episode will know that you are a complete authority on Die Hard it sounded like you'd done as much, of research. Yeah, as much preparation as you needed to do but the truth of it is which we said we would never share with our listeners is you were completely recording that on the fly you'd prep for a rocky episode and these two dipshits that you were recording with had completely messed up but I think that is amongst our most popular episodes we're, we're really pleased with it but God bless you, Jacob. You did incredibly well under some uh, ridiculous circumstances which were created by us, the best, not you. The best part was, I was thinking, shall I get him to tell me what happens in Creed 2 and we'll just do it on <laughs> we'll do it on the flight because I know the rest of the Rocky story like the back of my hand. But then I didn't uh, want him to spoil Creed 2 for me. <laughs> but there you go. That, that is the um, amusing behind-the-scenes story of uh, of our Christmas Die Hard episode. And that, that was the last time we drank on a podcast, I think, wasn't it? It was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're never doing that again. Well, you know, it, it, it was it was actually good fortune because I, I've seen Die Hard so many different times and you guys, you know, you, you guys, you know, are such authorities on it also and, you know, lovers of it. So you guys were, you know, great companions to to talk about that with. But, you know, even with the Rocky thing, I, I, I thought I was going a little crazy, too, because I actually went through my DMs and I was like, I was like, I'm pretty sure we mentioned Creed <laughs> in like the opening. And then we were we were going back and forth saying like, oh, uh, we want to record this day. And, and mm-hmm. I think it got mentioned a couple of times. But then I think on a separate like chat that, you know, Die Hard did get mentioned. And I, yeah. I, know, I know you guys are going to do that. But it, it was it all turned out good. And, and uh, you know, it was fun. It you know, is, I, yeah. I could actually do another Die Hard episode with you. I said this guy afterwards. I forgot so much because I literally couldn't concentrate. Die Hard, I think, is probably, it's definitely my top three. Yeah. And I, you know, I know the film word for word, and all the way through, I just felt so bad. Mm. I just literally couldn't concentrate. But yeah, you go, you go Thankfully, back. Thankfully, Jacob yeah. was the ultimate professional. He was, because, he yeah. was, he was a consummate professional. So we said amongst ourselves that we'll take that secret to our grave, but it's too good to pass up. <laughs> yeah, today for the for the fans of Film Eighty Nine, you know, a little little behind the scenes nugget. And one of our most uh, recent listener questions, which unfortunately due to time constraints didn't get answered, was how many how much planning and preparation goes behind an episode. <laughs> no. And it, it, no, it's, it's usually quite a bit. And it's usually very well organized but this was one occasion where it was a case of I think it was around to Christmas as yeah, well people it was, had different yeah, work commitments too, ma- too many Twitter uh, chat groups on yeah. the go things got confusing but you know we're telling this story more for more to compliment you to be honest it is it is it is so there you go uh, sorry Jacob did you say where people can find you on, on Twitter yeah I can be find out uh, JRATM23 on Twitter and you know you can go I haven't done many pieces for my 
website. I, I need to get back on that, but um, you know, jabhookboxing.com. I do guest host on a, a, a podcast called the Pound for Pound Boxing Report. Uh, Michael Wilson, uh, he he's been doing that for a while uh, now. So they do pretty much a weekly show where they talk all things boxing, and there's usually a regular cast of, of people on there. Um, and I'm usually one of them when when I can join. So if you guys uh, want to listen to, I was on Wrong Reel not too long ago for a Steven Soderbergh episode with uh, Matthias Vandrews. Great episode. Really enjoyed it. I did. Uh, yeah, not just blow me smoke up your ass. I I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was. It was. Yeah. Every time you're on Wrong Reel, it always makes for great listening. Just to bring it back to Fincher, I was on a um, Flixwise Canada uh, episode ten where me and Martin um, talked about the early uh, the '90 Fincher work, and I know I know we have a a sequel to that uh that we have to schedule that'll come up uh soon enough that uh we'll record when when he has some time and and i have some time but uh again thanks for having me on and it was it was a pleasure i would imagine when martin invites you on as well you actually discussed the film you were going to talk you thought you were going to talk you know he made for an amusing story and he just showed how awesome jacob is it did did. so neil where can people find you on social media Uh, you can find me on twitter at neil underscore gaskin you can find me on facebook at uh, rocky gaskiano oh he's finally giving away his facebook thing like it was some big fucking secret. Um, I'm on uh, Instagram as well at Neil's Picks, and also you can find you on uh, at oh, Film Eighty Nine UK and Film Eighty Nine dot co. No, no, lately because I haven't done anything, have I? You know, but uh, yeah, I'll be back soon. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, and you can find us all at Film Eighty Nine UK on Twitter and Facebook. And please check out Film Eighty Nine dot co. UK. Uh, I think the most recent article at the time of recording this is Hayden Spurls fantastic piece on uh, very good article yeah very on, good. on the Claire Denis film High Life which is an absolutely amazing piece and I'm not just saying it because um, it's our website but please guys and girls his that boy's writing is poetry if you like the podcast please recommend it to your friends your family anyone that loves film we really appreciate our ever increasing following if you could just take two or three minutes to leave us a positive iTunes review because it does mean a hell of a lot to us it means we get greater coverage on iTunes and uh, even when it changes to Apple Podcasts as well yeah what's all that about it's been Apple Podcasts over the UK for ages yeah I, I don't know <laughs> what keeps yeah, going on on it I'm like it's Apple Podcasts over they're here just, they're just getting rid of the iTunes format but they're still going to have the platforms like they have I, you know they just have I, uh, Apple Music uh, Apple uh, TV and then Apple Podcasts. So yeah, please, um, you know, an iTunes review would mean a hell of a lot to us. So yeah, um, I ho- hope you've enjoyed the episode. We'll be back very soon. So uh, until then, stay safe, stay happy, but most importantly, stay classy. 